0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina, Wednesday morning, February 8th, 843 Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So we can spend as much time as you'd like talking about the State of the Union. Um, I watched it, uh, an angry, defiant, dementia-ridden old man um, talking about, you know. I'm sorry to say I watched it, too. But it's part of your job, part of my job, to be somewhat informed and literate. On the political news of the day um, but I didn't pay much attention to it because before he ever started his um, State of the Union address I wrote down a note Um, the guy delivering the address said he attended law school on an academic scholarship and went to jail to protest apartheid neither is true so so if he says he went to law school on an academic scholarship graduated the top half of his class And he went to jail to protest apartheid. Why should you believe anything that he's going to say for the next, you know, 30, 60, 90 minutes um, in one ear out of the other? But it's a check I had to put in the box. So I did put a check um, in the proverbial box, so to speak. Um, Once again, it's it's the state of the union is strong. Now, the one thing he said, a couple of things kind of interesting to me. And and I'll start down this road. Um, One of the um, and I'll be a bit sarcastic here. He said, we're not a nation. I want to make sure I get this right. We're not a nation defined by geography. Well, he told the truth because he won't secure the Southern border. (laughs) Right. So obviously geography means very little. Um, He allowed a Chinese spy balloon to fly over Montana off the coast of South Carolina. So when he said, and and here's this exact quote, not a nation defined by geography, he meant every word of it. No question about it. Um, That makes perfect sense. If you look at the um at the world <laughs> yeah, as Joe borders, Biden does, borders what are
1: borders? Airspace it, what is airspace? Yeah,
0: it got a bit um raucous with some of the back row republicans, Marjorie Taylor Greene in particular. Um it makes
1: Joe Wilson's trick from a few years ago seem very tame, doesn't it?
0: But Trump it? kind of normalized yeah. some of the antics, some of the behavior. I mean, he, was, he was clearly lying. Well, I mean, he's but that's what they do in state of the union. That's why we really I mean other it, it's it's the it's the morning of this show that I dislike more than any other morning. Because I've got to tell you that I watch State of the Union, right. and there's no reason to watch State of the Union because it's a propaganda machine. I mean, and in all fairness, if the Republicans were in charge, the State of the Union is strong. There's no problems to see here. Now, I will try to irk some of our listeners today because one of the um, one of the points of unanimity was when the Republicans and Democrats gave a rousing ovation to themselves on Social Security and Medicare, the fact that they're not going to touch either one of those <laughs> programs. I went back and did some math while Joe Biden was giving um, his address. So we can spend as much time on this. I've got some information on the Ukrainian war that I think we'll find a bit interesting. We're heading ever closer to the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine. I think it's February 24. When they started the invasion of ukraine um, got some statistics i think you'll find a bit interesting and odd there it's almost like i want to be the ultimate contrarian and not talk any about <laughs> at all about the um the state of the union i, I do
1: have a question about state of the union okay. and i was going to ask you this if you have any idea and i honestly don't what he was talking about when it seemed he got the most mad and animated he was talking about xi jinping and he says <laughs> I think he said name one world leader that would want to trade places with Xi Jinping
0: and then he's name one name one starts well, yelling what 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 even did that mean do you it, know yeah. no it just it, it, it demonstrates his inability to be coherent he is a he is a man struggling with con- cognitive issues i think it's dementia but i think Alec Murdoch killed his um excuse me Alec Murdoch killed his wife and kid i mean that's just an opinion i have i don't know that to be true but because uh, and if I if I could evaluate Biden up close, I wouldn't know how to evaluate whether he's got dementia or not. But but I, I know the people that have had those sorts of issues late in life get angry and irrational. They get a bit defiant, and every now and then he'll reveal himself live in living color as being angry and defiant, and uh, and, and appears to be kind of the um. I mean I remember being in a here here you go you ready. I remember being at a Bojangles a couple of years ago during the summer because it was at the beach. And there was an older man there. Believe it or not, there are a lot of old people that have made their way to the Grand Strand. So I'm in there on a Saturday, maybe 1130-ish. I'll tell you what, Rev, I'm on my way to Lowe's to pick up something to do a little work at the house. And and I'm in there, and there's this man, and it's obvious he's in a state of um, cognitive decline. No question about it. And he's got a, um, a younger person with him, kid, brother-in-law, sister. I don't have any idea who the younger person was. And something about his food wasn't just right. Now, you and I would have said, hey, can I get a help? Can I get a little help? I, I want mashed potatoes instead of dirty rice. And he just got so angry and defiant. And it was embarrassing for everybody in the restaurant. And, and the, the person with him kind of, you know, motioned to the people behind the, hey, he's, he's got some issues here. You know what I mean? Um, Please forgive my father. But but he's got some cognitive issues, dementia in particular. He doesn't mean this. This is not who he is. But but he got real animated because something wasn't quite right in his world. And I think on several occasions we've seen Biden lash out and, and get a bit aggressive and defying into the way he talks about issue A or issue B. And um and that's why they won't let him do interviews. I mean that's why they won't let him sit down with a member of the media. And, and not read off of a teleprompter or have uh, a, a pre rehearsed list of, um, i Oh, say, okay, I'm supposed to call on David Goldman of NBC News. I'm supposed to call on Mark Jacobson of The Guardian. Um, you've seen him do this time and time and time again. I mean, there's an orderly way. I think his abilities are in decline, no question about it. Now, now once again, he's never been an academic beacon. Now, now despite his self proclamations or self pronouncements of, you know, went to law school on an academic scholarship. There's no truth to that. Graduated top half of my law class. No proof of that. In fact, there's proof that he graduated in the bottom third of his law class. But once again, he says he went to jail to protest apartheid and all these other things. But I think he's gotten to a point now, Rev, that if anybody challenged him on these untruths, he would really lash out in the most defiant, aggressive way imaginable. And when Biden said that last night, it, it, it reminded me of the Bojangles on Saturday at the beach, when, when, when a man who normally would not get that worked up, but, but has some serious issues kicking, um, defies in the way he did. But I want to go to more serious news. Uh, j- just for a second here, you've got to bear with me. Okay. Did you get an email from USC yesterday? <laughs> and I didn't say you of SC. I said you, you John Brown SC. That's right, Darcy. Um the, the, the horrible marketing, I went to Columbia over the weekend. My daughter's in a sorority. Try it So I went to Columbia over the weekend for a parent's cocktail. It's the most awkward situation. Here's the deal, because you said you went to a couple of these with your, with your boys when they were in a fraternity. Yep. So you go to Columbia. They rent a venue. The parents don't much like the kids at that age. The kids don't much like the parents at that age. But you say, "Hey, wouldn't it be cool if all of us went to dinner for a couple of hours to a um, a swankier than normal restaurant, and then we gather?" In our case, it was at the Cockaboo's Club at Williams bryce Stadium. Um, now, now once again, we've already established that other than needing money, the parent doesn't care much for the excuse me, the kid doesn't care much for the parent at that age. My daughter's nineteen; she doesn't like me and her mom. <laughs> except on rare occasions of needing some money. Venmoed sure. is the deal here. Um, we don't much like her. <laughs> you see where I'm headed. Yeah. But but for five hours, we got to be at a restaurant together and then a cocktail party together. And you're with parents of other students. And so they're as don't miserable know. as we are. Yeah,
1: and, and you don't know each other. And,
0: and, and the, nobody knows anybody. Music yep. is loud. You know yep. what I mean? Everybody's got a more expensive dress. Anyway, it's just kind of an awkward, but I get it. It's a check in the box. We talked about that earlier, mm-hmm. but but as I as I walked up to, to the stadium, um, you, you see a lot of improvements that have been made. I mean, I keep saying SEC money. You know, you see all the um. I mean, the University of South Carolina's football stadium is off campus, and Clemson's always, you know, uh, Clemson. It's been easier to control what happens around the stadium at Death Valley than it is at Williams-Brice because williams Bryce has always been, once again, an off-campus football stadium. That has control over some of the property, not control over over some of the other properties. But over the last decade, they've purchased about 180 acres of land from the stadium to the Congaree River. It, it encompasses. I mean, they're building dorms, they're building uh, public private housing. I mean, there's a lot of things going. They got about 6,300 freshmen coming in. Um, that one of the most recent freshman class, and uh, 6,500, I think, may have been the final number. So you've got a growing university, it's incorporated into the state capital, so it's not as nostalgic as Clemson or Auburn, which are college towns, you know, and everything is controlled by the university, um, but but they began about a decade ago purchasing property around the stadium. They've made some pretty dramatic enhancements and improvements with Gamecock Park, and uh, they bought the state fairgrounds property, excuse me, they bought the farmer's market property. The state fairgrounds, I think, are being more difficult, mm-hmm. and um, in other words, we think we've got a piece of property on Fifth Avenue that you guys will eventually <laughs> give us what we'd like to have. It's state agency dealing with another state agency. But I get a, an email yesterday, and I asked you earlier this morning if you got it. You said no, and I realize well, every I, now and then that you're on the peasant list, and I'm on the uh, the, the more exclusive list.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I kept looking because I didn't remember seeing it, but I did get something. And usually I see something comes from I'm a member of the Gamecock Club that says Gamecock, but this is actually from... What's it called? South Carolina Athletics, and it's titled Our Future. Is that okay. the one you're talking that, about? That's the one I'm talking and about. A, you click a, on
0: another icon, and it leads you to this. Yeah.
1: So I did get it. I just didn't see it.
0: It's, it's kind of the master plan uh, of what, what their intents are, yeah. what their intentions are.
1: But I did see a story about it, and I, I read the story. Uh, Gamecock Central, I think, put it out yesterday. And so I I just read through the story where Ray Tanner had given his uh,
0: remarks and it's pretty interesting. It's very interesting. It's the modernization of Williams Bryce Stadium and the surrounding areas. You're a big Braves fan. Right. But when the Braves built the new stadium out in Cobb County, yep. am I right? That's right. Um, they also built a battery, it's an entertainment area. Um, they're building shopping opportunities. Yeah. They're building yeah, housing nice. opportunities. Oh, yeah. uh, it, it'll be crazy nice in four or five years. It'll be stupid nice. I mean, I think they're building an indoor mall and an outlet center. And Anyway, it'll be a um, kind of an all-inclusive experience when you go to, to Truist Park, which may be named something else by then. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but it's named Truist Park today. But, but I think South Carolina, from what I'm gathering, some of my friendly insiders have told me that they want to replicate something similar what the Braves have done with the battery? Mm. Now, now, now not you got to think about. Well, not bad, but but stick with me not for a, a second. Bad idea. How many games do the Braves have a year? <laughs> what eighty? Eighty-one home yeah. games. uh The Gamecocks have seven home games. So, what sort of um business model can sustain itself with seven days a year? Three hundred sixty-five days. You only got seven of which you've got a captive audience. Now, in Atlanta, you got a major metropolitan area, right? you got about 6 million people that live in the Atlanta metropolitan area. My concern is when I read that they're basing the strategy off of what happened at Truist Park, I'm going, like, why? I mean, that, that makes no sense. Columbia's got less than a million people. Atlanta's got 6 million people. Columbia has, excuse me, Atlanta has 81 home games, of which people come from all over the southeast, to to support the businesses that are part of the battery. Yeah, that's true. And you've only got seven games. I mean, I don't know what what do you have to charge for a beer to sell enough in seven home games to pay your bills for the other three hundred and fifty
1: eight days. Well, unless their idea is to become a new destination in Columbia, taking the place of the
0: Vista and five points, right? Walk, live, work. I mean that's kind of the way they're 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 couching this. But but part of this and the only thing I'm interested in, I don't care how many apartments they bill. I don't care how many retail opportunities there are. I don't care how many restaurants there are. I mean, I like good old fashioned tailgating. The only thing that I am interested in is the modernization of Williams Ross Stadium. I mean that I am keenly interested in what their plan is, because if you've ever gone to an NFL game in a brand new NFL stadium, you realize how antiquated Death Valley and, and South Carolina are. I mean, you know, you, you you drive by the road, you look at Death Valley, and you like you you know, you're a Tiger fan. You remember in 1977 or 1969? Uh, you know, if you're a Gamecock fan, you remember well, a couple. Of, I don't. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there, there's got to be something there to remember, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so, right? So 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 so. But but you but you go there and you enjoy the nostalgia, the um the times that you know Jerry Butler caught the pass, or you see where I'm at. I think that might have been in Wheels Bryce, though. Um. Weird I know that, but I think it was in Williams mm-hmm. Bryce because I was there. That would have been in seventy seven, maybe? Seventy wow. yeah, about seventy seven when Butler catches a pass from Fuller that breaks every game cuts hard in Williams Bryce. Mm-hmm. Um but 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 when you look at when you when you go to I mean you've gone to a Panthers game, right? Compare Williams Bryce with the uh, the new stadium in Charlotte. Uh, no comparison. No comparison. No I mean, comparison. That, No I mean it's like you're you're stepping out of the county fair into Disney World. When you go to one of these um, NFL stadiums, yep. my daughter went with um, Trafalgar to Jerry World in Dallas, and she sent me a video. It blew her doors off. I mean, she was like, wow, I thought we had a nice stadium. I said, like, well, we do in the grand scheme of things. It ain't nothing like this. <laughs> so, um, so the University of South Carolina is engaging a development company or companies that will enhance and modernize the experience at Williams-Brice Stadium. What does that look like i don't have any idea rev i've read everything from a an outdoor plaza around the scoreboard you can view the game from bar tables and drinks and you know a lot of entertainment opportunities it's um it's almost like they're trying to bring the tailgating into the stadium tailgating is a big part of football down south clemson south carolina georgia alabama no matter i mean you know most of the big time programs that make big commitments to football football tailgating i've told my buddies at the board that um, talking about game day experiences. I said, if you had a game and outlaw tailgating and had a tailgating and outlawed the game, <laughs> there would be more people come to the tailgating tailgate. than the game. Probably so. But if you said, hey, you, you folks who love to tailgate, we're not having a game today. It doesn't matter. We're coming to tailgate. But if you told those people to go to the game, hey, we're having a game today, but you're not going to be allowed to tailgate. A third of the crowd, I half the crowd, would probably stay home and say, I'll watch it on television if I can't. If I can't tailgate, so modernization and enhancing williams Bryce Stadium is very interesting to me. Once again, there's 180 acres from the stadium to the Congaree River that the university has gradually and incrementally purchased. They have the rights; they control what happens on these, you know, less than, more than 100, less than 200 acres. And I'm excited about what will happen eventually to that property. But I'm a lot more excited about what sort of enhancements or improvements or um, modernizing of Williams Bryce Stadium, they say they won't disrupt game days. Um, in other words, they're going to do it during the off season. They're going to do it during weeks that they have like a two-week break. And, uh, and I got to believe, Rev, you take a concession stand and turn it into a restaurant, you take a, a certain seating area and turn it into a, a plaza or a pavilion, you take certain, I don't know, characteristics of the stadium and modernize those in an amazing way. 30 days from today, I think there's going to be some sort of um, announcement that they partnered with a company, or they've actually doing an RFI, request for information, and then it'll end up with an RFP, and you know how government has to work. I'm it to have to be a bidding process to make sure everything's above board. Um, No wink, wink, nod, nod, friendly friendlies in the public sector. But as a Gamecock fan, I'm kind of interested in, and I'd love to know if Clemson is considering doing that. Because once again, you've got stadiums that the two fan bases love. I mean, the, the Tiger fans love Death Valley. The Gamecock fans love Williams-Brice. But but what if you could really turn it up a notch? What if you could take Death Valley or williams Bryce and uh, turn it in, Not Jerry World. But that's a billion dollars. I don't know where you get a billion bucks from. But, but what sort of enhancements or modernization would happen at either stadium? And it's one of the few emails I've gotten from USC that I got a little bit giddy about. And I actually text two buddies of mine who were on the board who had to draft or had to agree to allow this to take place. And they said, "Um, everybody in on, everybody on the inside is really excited about what the prospects." which like. I've been impressed with what they've done so far. I mean,
1: these, these small and imp- small, I'm sure they were very expensive improvements. The, the ribbon boards uh, that they put in this last year, the lights, the gimmicky
0: keep, things. gimmicky But
1: isn't isn't that part of the game day experience yeah, we it. It. sure it is. They, mean, it, they improved the sound system. I mean, those were things
0: that... They're, they're beginning to accept that they're not in the football business, but rather the entertainment business. People aren't spending X number of dollars to go to a football game. They're spending X number of dollars to be entertained.
1: Now, when I read, and hear all this you know the first thing i think is exactly what you're saying i mean cha-ching right as as someone who you know really has to struggle with deciding whether i'm going to you know join the gamecock club at this level and continue to invest in tickets and a parking place every year um, i'm thinking wow
0: where's the price on this stuff gonna go ain't nothing free (laughs) right i'll just say that ain't nothing for free Hmm. take a break we'll be back in just a few moments, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Rodney and Florence. Good morning.
2: Yes, sir. I watched Sarah Huckabee last night, and I think she jacked it out in the park.
0: Thank you, Rodney. Appreciate that. I did not watch her. I mean, I read some of the comments and and Cliff Notes of what she said. I uh, talked a lot about woke culture. Talked a lot about it. But it got late. I mean, it got ten o'clock or so, a little bit later than ten. By the time the president left the chamber, and um, and I didn't watch. I didn't wait around to watch what Sarah Huckabee um, Sanders had to say. It's kind of interesting. Um, I was thinking about this last night. If I were responsible for offering um, the counter address to the president, who would it have been? And it would not have been Sarah Huckabee Sanders, a recently elected or newly elected governor of uh, of Arkansas. You know, her father was a governor of Arkansas. Now she's the governor of Arkansas. But I would imagine it was um, something most Republicans find relatable and um, and adhering to. But uh, I just I think other people have earned the right. I don't know that Huckabee Sanders has earned the right to be the voice of the other side when it comes to a presidential um, state of the union. Who are you thinking? DeSantis? Well, I mean, I, you know, DeSantis has earned more of that right than um, Senator Huckabee Sanders has. Uh, Jim Jordan... Would have been somebody I find interesting, Um, Kevin. I mean, he's Speaker of the House. He can't do that. Was taped, so he could. Um, I I don't know. I mean, you know, I I just she doesn't come to mind to be one of the uh, one of the movement leaders in the America First movement within the party. I mean, she's been a loyal soldier. Don't get me wrong. And you know, the the jury's out as to whether she'll be a good governor of um of Arkansas or not. So who knows? It's kind of interesting. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is now in the same um line is bill clinton I know. bill clinton former governor of arkansas sarah huckabee sanders now um, former governor of arkansas she sure did take a lot of incoming fire as trump's press secretary she did but she would expect that yeah. i mean you know being be the um operating as the uh, the voice or the mouthpiece of the change agent in a city that doesn't much like change and maybe i'm not giving her her due maybe i just answered my own question i mean she met the media every day on behalf of Donald Trump pretty big price to pay in Washington, um, D.C., as unpopular as Trump was and remains in uh, in Washington, D.C. It's going to be an interesting election cycle. And if they can prop Bernie up long enough, he's running again. Because I've seen the data on Harris. I mean, I've seen some of the numbers on Harris. Um, they've actually fixed the primary system now that it's South Carolina before New Hampshire. Buttigieg is leading in the polls in New Hampshire. And New Hampshire and Iowa are more – transactional states. I mean, there's a lot of transacting between the candidate and the, um, the voters, um, the Iowa caucus, the New Hampshire primary. I mean, it's, it's, it's very personal. It's very intimate. I mean, there's a lot of face time the candidates have with voters in New Hampshire in particular. And I think when you, when you basically let South Carolina jump Iowa and New Hampshire in the primary systems in the Democrat party, you're basically trying to rig it for Joe Biden. Biden comes down south. Clyburn gives the endorsement. He's off to the races. Um, Rev always questions whether or not he should have been on the ballot anyway because of not meeting the threshold or not crossing the threshold in Iowa. Um, that's a question we've never had answered. Did they ever release the no, results? Nobody's ever been interested in a hearing Democrat that data.
1: Caucus, I well, guess, sure it but is. Yeah. I mean,
0: that, that's the Democrat Party at work. And, and to be honest with you, they probably deserve the right to run their caucus and their primary as they see i they I'm see not fit. disputing that, I'm just saying I don't think they, I don't think Biden met their threshold of what at 15 yeah. percent, in Iowa, and should have moved, moved on. on to New yeah. Hampshire. I mean that's the way the game is played. But once again, um, it's home cooking, no question about it. But that's who they wanted to be their nominee because once again they felt they could keep him out of the way and um, you know tell him it, the, the strategy in 2020 was let this other guy beat himself, you know, let Trump say enough enough crazy things or enough outrageous. Things that he beats himself, um, but they have this time put South Carolina at front of the line. I think there'll be some challenges legally uh, from New Hampshire and uh, and Iowa. We'll see how that works itself out. I don't have much interest in how the Democrats choose their nominee. I don't care if it's Biden or not. I'm far more interested in Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump. I mean, to me that that the only the only political contest in America that I'm really keenly interested in is DeSantis and Trump. I mean, I think DeSantis, excuse me, I think Trump and Haley's a mismatch. I think Trump and Pompeo's a mismatch. I think Trump and Christie's a mismatch. I mean, if you know, we we said yesterday, 80% of the candidates who win the eventual nomination of their party enter the race north of 20%. I mean, 80%'s a big number, guys. Nothing hardly happens in the political world at 80%, but 80% of candidates who enter a race with a... Um, well, let, let me let me give it the better. Here's the better spin of it. Only 20% of candidates who enter a race with a poll number of less than 20% are successful at winning the nomination. It's very rare that that happened. The only two Republicans today that have polling numbers north of 20% are Donald Trump, somewhere around 40, and Ron DeSantis, somewhere around 31, 32, 33. I mean, Trump is still the proverbial favorite. I don't think he's the prohibitive favorite, but he's somewhat the favorite. Um, but but DeSantis and Trump are the only two Republican officeholders in America today that Republican primary voters hold um, in high regard. Haley's at about somewhere between three and five. Pence is somewhere between three and five. Pompeo's one to three. Christie's two to three. Um, you know, nobody's anywhere close to 10 percent. Haley couldn't make an announcement in February. A couple of weeks from well, a week from now, and 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 gain a little momentum. I mean, she could get to ten, eleven, twelve percent. I mean, I can see that happening. C- kind of an announcement bump, and and she is a disciplined, ambitious politician. So Haley could begin to kind of separate herself from the Pompeo's of the world, the the Pences of the world. Um, she's more. I mean, obviously, the exclusivity of her candidacy will separate her her from some of the others. But, um, but, but once again, eighty percent of the candidates with a number north of twenty percent win the primary. So right now, there's an eighty percent chance that the nominee of the Republican Party will be either Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. I mean, that's inescapable. that That number is a, a fixture in this in this race. Now, now once again, if DeSantis does not get in, what does that do to the realities of the race? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I can't play that out in my head. I know if DeSantis does get in, we've got a hotly contested Republican primary. I mean, I think anybody, I don't care how ardent a Trump supporter you are, if DeSantis gets in, he's a legitimate threat to Donald Trump winning the primary. Right now, the most legitimate threat is Nikki Haley because she's the only one that has let it be known that she's going to run. But Nikki Haley cannot get to where Donald Trump is. There's no, I mean, I just don't see any way imaginable for Haley to get anywhere near 40% of Republican primary voters. Let's go to the phone. JT in Florence. morning.
3: Morning guys. How are you doing? Hey JT. Um, So Ken, I, I think I read this a little while back. So on the democratic side, they're making South Carolina the first primary, correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, So do you think, I, I don't know there's always like five things I want to ask you, and that's not fair, but let me just say, do you think the Republican Party follows suit or I don't then deal like, i deal. You
0: know, I, no, I I think the Republicans will adhere to Iowa, then New Jersey, excuse me New Hampshire, and then South carolina okay
3: um so I'd look you know like I don't know you you could spend a while on this, but like what the merits of that are just' because, well, that's always we've done it, but is Iowa really a good picture? Of, of who, the whole country would pick.
0: It's a terrible picture. It's a terrible picture.
3: No, okay, thank. You. Well, I, I wasn't going to use that word, but I'm <laughs> like, no, no, it's clearly not. So why do we keep? I don't know, like. Why do we just keep this broken system? Yes, if, if South Carolina, well, South Carolina is not perfect by any means, but if you look at its demographic makeup, it's actually a. I don't know you got a lot of variety. You got a lot of. uh I just don't know why the Republicans would be dead set on saying, nope, this is what we're going to do forever. But uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you was what what fundamentally has changed uh, from a state perspective with mail-in ballots and the two candidates themselves? If it was a Trump-Biden rematch, why is Trump winning? If if you're if, whether you like Trump or let's just say you're a diehard Trump Trump's you love him you love the guy. What is what is different this go around where he would beat Biden, G- given what you know, wh- whether you think it was what you know, but but given the this the mail-in ballots that you have, the ballot harvesting that's in place that got practiced in the midterms as well, what makes what makes it a victory for you? I'm just curious. And you can pick which one of those two items you want to talk about. Because, again, I I, I like to talk about too many things with you. Y'all, y'all have a great day. Take care.
0: Thank you, JT. Appreciate that. It's kind of an interesting question, and I've tried to play this out in my head. Because um, some polls show <clears throat> right now that Trump would beat Biden today. But the poll doesn't show b- ballot harvesting. The right. poll does not reflect the month-long process the Democrats have slaughtered the Republicans at for the last two election cycles. Um, and that's my concern with Trump trump has a problem guys admit this i mean i'm a trump supporter i have yelled and screamed in support of donald trump for six years really seven years a year before the 2020 um, excuse me the 2016 election began so we're going on eight years of being a very dedicated supporter of america first donald trump being the figurehead the leader of the band so to speak but but trump has a problem about 25 percent of republican primary vote excuse me uh, 25% of the electorate in a general election aren't going to vote for Donald Trump. You can't have that problem combined with ballot harvesting. I mean, if, if the Republicans were on equal footing with the Democrats on ballot harvesting and, and the organizational structure it takes to make sure, you know, legitimate or illegitimate votes, and I'm talking about unsolicited mail-in ballots, we've not done much to address that in some of these purple states. Pennsylvania is as, um, as shady as it's ever been. Arizona, ask Kerry Lake, is as shady as it's ever been. Georgia cleaned up some of the issues, not enough to get Herschel Walker over the top. See, Walker to me is the um, kind of the case study of Trump. Certain people were not going to vote for Herschel Walker. They just were not. And 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 Walker was a victim of that reality, plus the ballot harvesting operation that Stacey Abrams has instituted in Georgia. That's going to be the same thing in Pennsylvania. The same in Michigan, the same in Wisconsin, the same in Arizona, and the same in Georgia. So how does Trump underperform with 25% of the electorate and lose ground on ballot harvesting, unsolicited mail-in ballots? I mean, all the shenanigans that you and I believe go on uh, during the month leading up to uh, the day of the election. Remember, Rev, how many times have we heard this? The, um, the, uh, the, the Republicans will win election day overwhelmingly. But they'll lose, you know, the month leading up to Election Day. And, and I just don't think a candidate can lose 25% of the electorate with an R beside their name and make up enough ground on Election Day for what the Democrats have already done in the previous month by stacking the, the deck. And I'm talking about, once again, unsolicited mail-in ballots and ballot harvesting and all these, um, I don't know, Rev, um, Election Incorporated. With the Democrat Party. I mean, it's a business. They're better at the business of ballot harvesting than the Republicans are. DeSantis, I think, does not have that same problem. I don't think, I mean, DeSantis is going to lose the ballot harvesting battle because he's a Republican. And unless the Republicans do certain things in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Georgia, they're going to be uh, kind of facing an uphill challenge. But 25% of the electorate have not automatically said no to DeSantis. Now, it'll be a percentage, but I don't think it's 25%. So, so, so as I strategize about how to win as a Republican, I have to accept that I'm going to lose election month. I'm going to win election day. I'm going to lose election month. How big can I win election day by? And I'm not sure Trump can win election day by a big enough margin to make up the deficit that he's created via election month. DeSantis, you ready? I think DeSantis can. I don't think, DeSantis is a polarizing figure, but I don't think the number's 25%. I think it's closer to 15-ish percent. But the only way the Republicans get on equal footing is to establish an organizational structure similar to what the Democrats have done in Arizona, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, that that we're, we're not that far behind when the first votes are cast on election day. You can't be 550,000 votes behind in Pennsylvania. You can't be 400,000 votes behind in Georgia. You can't be 200,000 votes behind in Arizona. You can't make that up. Trump damn sure can't. It's going to be real hard for DeSantis to do it, but I think the chances of him doing it are better than the chances of Trump successfully making up the deficit that is created in the month leading up to Election Day. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. I want to go back to JT's other point real quick before we go to our next caller. Not only is Iowa bad, kind of a, um, an example of the diversity of America, they use a caucus system. It's not even a primary. It's, um you know, members of each party get together in these local meetings they call caucuses. They select delegates. The delegates go to a county convention. Then they go to a district convention. Um, uh, they choose the candidate via the caucus uh, method. So, yeah, Iowa is a unique state in America with a more an even more unique way of picking their their presidential candidate via the caucus method instead of a instead of a primary. Let's go to the phone, Charles and Lamar morning.
2: Good morning. You know, I have to express my thoughts on the radio now because I'm back in Facebook jail. Um, <laughs>
1: You're welcome got, here. Uh,
2: Yeah, I got suspended uh, twice for the same picture of Hunter Biden flying beneath beneath a balloon. I did get a private message this morning from Tina Turner. She said, I've been in abusive relationships before. So uh, I decided I'd uh, turn to the radio instead. You know, everybody agrees that we need to look at Social Security and say, yeah, maybe we should start at 62 and a half in five years, and then 63 uh, two years after that, and then 63 and a half, or maybe for retirement age should be 72. Maybe Medicare should start at 67. But can you name me one Republican, one, just one, who is calling for sunsetting Social Security and Medicare, like the liar-in-chief said last night? Just one.
0: No, the only thing they can argue, Charles, is on the um the, the bullet point agenda from, from Senator Rick Scott last year. Um, it reads, because I went back and read it this morning, all federal legislation sunsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. I mean, that's kind of a sweeping statement that could be interpreted by the other side, so to speak, as I'm wanting to, you know, harm Social Security and Medicare. I mean, I'm with you. But 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 if I were a Democrat operative trying to find an angle to to substantiate my claim, it would be Scott's bullet points.
2: Yeah, well, um, <laughs> that's not what that was intended to be. We of course, I know that it needs to be looked at. It needs to be adjusted. Um, the biggest problem that we have with Social Security is I know people, you know, people I probably know a half a dozen personally who are drawing Social Security disability benefits at a young age and are still working a full time job on the side and getting paid under the table. And that's a major issue, which really has nothing to do with the Social Security retirement system. But um, that's, that's something we'll talk about later. Did you see uh, President Trump's truth that he posted yesterday regarding Ron DeSantis? I did not. He uh, posted an old picture of DeSantis with some young co-eds, uh, which was also posted by uh, Andrew Gillum, the uh, uh, coke addict passed out in the hotel room that almost beat DeSantis in the election uh, four years ago. It was also posted by Nikki Freed when she ran against him as governor this past November, trying to accuse him of being a groomer. So President Trump is, has accused Ron DeSantis of being a groomer, and I am just about to the point of jumping off that Trump train just simply because of that kind of BS. Um, There's no reason for that, for somebody who has not even announced a candidacy and someone who, if they do announce, is someone who's pretty much on the same side as Trump. But anyway... Maybe Jeff will agree with that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Charles. Appreciate so that.
2: Say I hope you all have a great day, and I'll call you later today.
0: Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Hey, in the 7 o'clock hour, I don't have time to do it now. We've got about 30 seconds. I, want to, I, mean, I really had a lot of notes prepared for Social Security in regards to to what Biden said last night, State of the Union. Um, this is what I call make Day Baker mad moment Uh-oh. of the show. Um, let's Great. go there. Charles Open the door. I want to make sure we step in that room and explain ourselves as best we can. Back in just a few. Okay, Charles made an interesting statement. I thought Charles wanted to talk about some of the modernization at williams Bryce Stadium. <laughs> I bet not. <laughs> I thought this why called in <laughs> to really uh, expound upon uh, may, maybe uh, did he ask you for a copy of the email that we got yesterday <laughs> he, he did, that he didn't that he did not, not get? He, okay, he did not. I, I didn't imagine and, that. And I'm just I'm just
1: happy that he stuck around <laughs> through all the gamecock
0: talk. <laughs> well, it and wasn't the, all still, the gamecock talk. It was three minutes worth of modernization of williams Bryce Stadium. Sure, he didn't enjoy that. Uh, I, I would imagine. I think you are exactly right when it comes to that. So, um, so Charles made mention of. President Biden last night saying that the um, the Republicans basically want to monkey around with Social Security and Medicare. I um, mean that's the scare tactic, fear mongering. Sunset was the word. Uh, he used. Sunset was the word. But but if you go back now, let let's let, let's first of all know who we're dealing with. First note on my page this morning: the guy giving the State of the Union address was the same guy that said he attended a law school on an academic scholarship, graduated first half of his class. That's not true. Joe Biden did not attend law school on an academic scholarship. Joe Biden did not graduate first half of his class. Joe Biden is also the guy who said he went to jail to protest apartheid. So you got to understand who you're dealing with. Um, Trump dishonest. You know, that's the mainstream media's narrative. Trump is dishonest. Tr- Trump is dishonest in the most honest kind of way. I mean, he embellishes, he exaggerates, he's, um, he's narcissistic. Joe Biden is a very insecure man. Joe Biden has a little bit of what I'd call imposter syndrome. How did I end up here? I mean, I'm not real smart. I've never accomplished much of anything in the real world. I ran for a Senate seat back in the early 70s, caught lightning in the bottle, won that seat. I've managed to hang on to a political career for a half century um I've, I've created this shtick called lunch Pale joe and ride amtrak and you know uh, scrappy scranton joe and all these other um uh, just weirdnesses of american politics but but when, when when joe biden says anything remember that joe biden's the guy that said i attended law school and academic scholarship and i went to jail to protest apartheid so you got to discount about 70 percent of what he says anyway Combine that with the modern reality of dementia, this irate, um, th- 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 this this aggressive, um, this um, defiant way of speaking about things. Uh, remember last night when he said something about Xi Jinping. You know, yeah. um, what other leader would trade places with him? And and he's yelling, name and screaming, yeah, name, name one. one. Now, I mean, he sounds like a um, know. just a and man With know wild. with that, that, that man. Uh, nobody else did either. And um, that's why they won't let Joe sit down with the media. But because, once again, he gets this real aggressive, defiant tone about him. Um, Did you know I I, I went to jail to to protest apartheid? No, you didn't, Joe. I mean, there's no record of that. You did not, Joe. I mean, what would Joe Biden do if he sat down with an honest member of the media, if we could find one, and that honest member of the (laughs) media said, Joe, you said that you went to law school on an academic scholarship. That's just not true. I mean, how defiant do you think Biden would get? I mean, he'd get totally irate? And um and defending of what he said all these these years. But he did say it last night, um, and here's his exact word, you ready? Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. Well, I went back and read, Senator Rick Scott, because I thought I knew what Biden was hinting at. So if I went back and read, um now, now once again. Uh, triggered a loud round of boos from the Republicans. Oh, you know how they do in these State of the Unions. We like what you said. We don't like what you said. Um, and I think Kevin McCarthy kind of led that. So that was a um when the speaker kind of leads the way in, in negativity. You're, you're you're I mean you can't do what Joe Wilson did and yell you, know, you lie. I mean everybody remembers that. But but when when the when the speaker basically gets permission of the majority in the House today. To kind of stand up and boo that i mean romney will never do it because he's such a student of decorum he's a candidate um (laughs) but but it does come from a bullet point of an agenda that senator rick scott put out when he was talking about running for senate majority leader and he said we've got to address social security and medicare he's exactly right he's the only adult thus far in the u.s senate um but he said here's how it reads all federal legislation sunsets in five years well, Medicare and Social Security are federal legislation. So so technically, Scott is saying everything's on the table. All federal legislation sunsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. I happen to believe that Scott deserves a round of applause for suggesting that um now he doesn't specifically single out one way or the other Medicare or Social Security. Here are the realities as we speak. Once again, that the guy who said he attended law school with an academic scholarship and went to jail to fight apartheid said that the Republicans want to change Social Security and Medicare. Um, and, and, and then he continued. And here's, here's verbatim what he said, got the transcript from the State of the Union. Americans have paid in from the first paycheck they started. Um, and this line kind of perpetuates the myth that people who are collecting Medicare and Social Security um, are merely taking out what they put in. In other words that's my money anyway why shouldn't I be entitled why should they change um the um the formulas the actuaries the um you know the way of which we designate X amount of benefit at X um, number of years um but 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 at least we can agree that today in America I'll give an example rev there are there were 45 million people collecting social Security in 2000 there's 70 million today. Ah, uh, excuse me. By 2024, about 68 million today, there'll be 70 million by 2024. So the number has gone, and I'm talking about Social Security recipients, and this is you know old people and disabled people. Huh. Okay, um, it's gone from 45 to 70 million dollars. So Biden continues tonight. Let's all agree, and apparently we are. Let's stand up for seniors. Let's stand up and show them we will not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. Those benefits belong to the American people. They earned it. To some degree, he's right. I mean, there's no doubt about it. To some degree, um, the people that have paid in are the people that deserve to benefit. A certain percentage of your paycheck is discounted or taken from you to fund Medicare, to fund Social Security. Um, but Medicare and Social Security today are already spending more on benefits than they take in via taxes. There is no trust fund. There is no lockbox. I mean, it's money in, money out. So absent action, I mean, if we decide to do what everybody wants to do and don't monkey around with Social Security, don't mess with Medicare, Medicare beneficiaries will receive an automatic 10% cut. I mean, the formula easily shows this. The actuaries easily address this in the – um and the looking forward funding and money going in, money coming out. Inflow, outflow is, is how we designate that terminology in business. So if we don't do anything to Medicare other than continue the course as as we are, there will be a 10% cut to benefit sooner than later. Um, when? Uh, probably within a decade, somewhere thereabout. Here's the more significant cut. You ready? Social Security. I mean, if we don't do anything to Social Security today, if we don't adjust the um, the eligibility age, we're going to have about a 20 to 25 percent cut in Social Security benefits. Whatever you think you're going to get, you're going to get about 20. I mean, some of the uh, the the most recent numbers I've seen are 23 percent. I've seen some as low as 21. I've seen some as high as 25. But the most recent number I've seen is 23 percent um, cut. The only way to avert the only way to 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 stop this from happening. Um, and I I guess there seems to be some bipartisan consensus, is to change the law that will ultimately um, either shift the burden to the fund and force the cuts or shift the burden to working-class Americans. So in Social Security, you're paying 6.2%. Your employer is matching at 6.2%, 12.4% annually. And that money goes, well, it's really a Ponzi scheme. I'm sorry, it is. I mean, it's money in, money out. There is no trust fund drawing interest. It's not insolvent because there is some money sitting there. In other words, it's, it's, it's not an empty box and we put money. There's a box with some money in there, but it can't honor the benefits unless the box is filled with money that we're paying in today. In other words, Friday's... When you get paid Friday, that 6.2% that your employer's matching with another 6.2%, that money doesn't go in an investment fund somewhere and stay there for 30 years until you retire, and then your money's there waiting on you. But that's just not the way it's working today. And the way it's working, or the the reason it's not working that way, is we had 45 million people drawing Social Security in 2000. We've got nearly 70 million people joining, excuse me, um, collecting today. I'm not saying they didn't pay into it. They of course they did. They're entitled to a benefit. But we're not going to have mo- enough money unless we raise the six point two to about eleven. So you've got Dave Baker getting eleven percent of his pay taken. You got the employer matching it with eleven percent. So you got about twenty two percent instead of twelve point four percent. That's the only way to offset the cost. Either we're going to cut the benefits of those receiving Social Security or we're going to raise taxes. To fund the current benefits I mean there is no other answer the Fed can keep printing money and we can spend money we don't have or we can address this like grown people either we tell people under the age of 50 that the deal we made can't be honored you got to work three more years you got to work two and a half more years you got to work four more years you can't collect Medicare you can't be a recipient of Medicare benefit until you're 67 or 68 or, or 69 whatever that number is the, the math just does not work but here's my struggle. And here's where I get on my tangent. So let's say that the average American family makes hundred thousand dollars a year, for argument's sake, and to be to make sure I'm not um, you know a, a, a sexist or a misogynist. Let's say there's a woman out there working making sixty grand and a man making forty grand. Now the household income's a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, stick with me; that makes the math easy. Six point two percent of that earned income is 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 taken from you before you ever get it. Your employer. It's matching it with 6.2%. And if you're self-employed, you're doing 12.4%. I mean, you're having to pay, you know, both sides of the Social Security benefit. So with $100,000 household income, you and the man, and I didn't say the man was making 60 and the woman was making 40. I said the woman was making 60 and the man is making 40 because I have a degree of wokeness about me <laughs> and a degree of political correctness in my bones. So I got hundred grand a year. That's $1,033 a month. You're paying in Social Security benefit, uh, but that's what you aren't getting in your paycheck. Excuse me. You aren't getting half that. The employer is having to come up with the other 6.2%. So let's say, Rev, that you and I invested in a fund, a private fund that made, um, let's say it made 6% interest, and we worked 30 years. We started working at 25 we stopped working at fifty five. Now I don't know anybody well, I'm mean, gonna do this with government workers stop at fifty-five. I don't know any private sector employees that start working, stop working at fifty-five unless they win the lottery or sell their business for, you know, a bunch of money, hit the, you know, kind of win the um win the private sector jackpot, so to speak. So so if I if me and my wife are making a hundred grand a year, and I'm just doing this because it's easy to do the math, and twelve point four percent of my income matched by my employer are put in a kitty somewhere. I'm not talking about a lockbox i'm not talking about a government run fund i'm not talking about inflow and outflow i'm talking about if it's my private social security account i'm putting in a thousand thirty three dollars a month me and the owner of the business that i work for are putting in a thousand thirty three dollars if i work for 30 years and that draws six percent interest guess what i have rev i have a million six thousand six hundred seventy one dollars if it makes seven percent which is the historical average of Wall Street, the S&P 500, the Russell Index. I've got a $1,208,644. That's mine. I don't have to wait on the government. I don't have to go to the post office or look in my online banking to make sure the government has given me some of my money back. It's my money. It's a transferable asset. I can leave that money to my kid. All of a sudden, I retire at 60 years old. I've got a $1,006,000 that belong to me. I've got $1,208,000 that belong to me. So let's do this. Let's say that at the, the time of my retirement, I want to stop working. But I got to get a less aggressive in my investment strategy, right? I don't want to lose my money. So I tell my investment guy, hey, I tell Reggie Armstrong, hey, Reggie, let's be careful. I don't need to lose this money, man. I mean, I've worked all my life. I put 6.2%. The, the guy that runs the business put 6.2%. I don't want to screw this up. I mean, it's the biggest nest egg I ever had, ever will have. I'm not a wealthy person. I I just can't goof this up. And and Reggie Armstrong says, "Hey, I've got a way we can draw four percent interest a year." So, so if you've got a million six thousand dollars and you put it in a fund drawing you four percent, and I'm talking about an income producing fund, you're getting four thousand two hundred sixty six dollars. Excuse me, forty thousand two hundred sixty six dollars a year, and you're not touching your principal. If you got seven percent, you got You know, $1,208,000 and you want 4% annually, you're getting $48,321 a year. So you're getting somewhere between $3,355 every month or $4,026 every month. Instead of what? $2,000 a month from Social Security? $2,800 a month from Social Security? The absurdity of this formula is ridiculous. And it is bizarre to me that we believe the government's doing us a favor by not touching Social Security. They've taken your and your employer's money and squandered it. They don't have your money in the bank. They don't have the owner of the business's money in the bank. It's going to fund a lot of other nonsense and craziness and government program in the name of government largesse or government government doing good for people around the world. So the absurdity of that, and when I hear Americans say, I don't want you messing around with my Social Security and Medicare, I want you messing around with my Social Security. And if you're under the age of 40, you need somebody messing around with your Social Security. Leave the funding formula in place. Here's the deal. You ready? Let's agree. Let's compromise here. You can continue to take 6.2% of my money because I don't need to be 65 and destitute. Now the libertarian in me says, "Well, that's your problem. That's your fault." But I'll give in to the civil construct. I mean, I'll play ball for a second. I'm a libertarian-leaning Jeffersonian, but but I, I you know I'll be reasonable and pragmatic here for a second, and I'll agree to let government address the issue for, in, in the name of common good. So 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 okay, I'm making X number of dollars. Take six point two percent. Put it in an account that I own. I'm mandated to to um, contribute that six point two percent. The employer is mandated to contribute 6.2%, but that's my money. That money doesn't belong to the government. The way we're doing it today, the money belongs to the government, and the government's already spent your money. And when the number of recipients goes from 45 to $70 million, there ain't no damn money left. They're stealing from you. Your government is spending your money on things that you didn't approve of. The only way to fix Social Security is to privatize it. Now, I understand. Well, we can't do that, Ken. Why? Because it would be the revealing of a Ponzi scheme. That's not my problem. I mean, America has big problems. And somebody's got to be ballsy enough to offer up some big solutions. And the solution to Social Security for younger people, not you and I, Reb. I mean, we're not over the hill, but we're, we're kind of at the top of the hill. I mean, we've got a lot of living. We've got more living in our rearview mirror than we do in our front windshield. I mean, you ain't living to be 115, and I ain't living to be 120. I mean, I've lived more days than I'm going to live. I hope I got a few more ahead of me, but, but, I, but I accept that I, you know the majority of my life has been lived. I think there's a bunch of days ahead, but it's not the majority. But, but we've, got to, we, we've got to address this in a very grown-up fashion, and our country doesn't appear to be interested in having a grown-up debate. What, what would be more empowering? Now, now, here's the conspiracy theory. You ready, Reb? The last thing the federal government wants... Is a bunch of working stiffs with a million dollars right I mean, that's the last thing the government wants the, the government don't want Doug, Dave Baker to have a million two hundred eight thousand dollars of his own money in his private Social Security account you know why because Dave Baker might not need the government for much of anything mm-hmm. Congress becomes less relevant less powerful less influential Dave Baker can say hey man I've worked 30 years I've got my deal squared away and how much different is life for the Baker kids If Dave Baker's worked all of his life and he's amassed a million dollars and he's able to pass that down, that's generational wealth. That's independence. I mean, you know, we talk about rugged individualism and and personal independence and and accountability and responsibility. I mean, the next thing you know, Dave Baker has a million dollars. Dave Baker can draw, you know, $40,000 a year and not need the federal government for anything. That the reason they've not privatized Social Security is because the government becomes less relevant less in control less in power less authoritative and that's where the libertarian in me really just i mean i clench my fist and grit my teeth and say why have we allowed the social security medicare model to be celebrated why aren't we irate at what our government has done with with 6.2 percent of your earnings 6.2 percent of the business you work for and its earnings why are we celebrating when someone says i'm not touching social security For God's sake, let's touch Social Security. Let's reform it in a major and profound way to be fair to the American people about how they can spend their money when they decide it's time to not work any longer. Let's go to the phone. Uh, We need to take a break. Okay, let's take a break. I'm sorry. We got a, um, a Fox call. Yep. Okay. Take a break. Back in just a few. Eight four three six six one O nine three seven is our number. So yeah, every working not every work in America, but a lot of working Americans would have a pretty significant nest egg. Well I mean is a million bucks a significant Nest egg? I'll ask you that. Um eight four three six six one O nine three seven is our number. I want to shift gears and go to another sub we'll get back to the State of the Union and some of the um uh, so some of the agreement disagreement on social security and medicare in just a couple of seconds but one of the stories that i have been infatuated with is the um i'm a dispelled alex murdoch it's pronounced elic murdoch in the in the low country of south carolina and rev says i become consumed you have. By, by this story and a lot of people i know be, but, but a lot of what i'm consumed by i know many of the people in the courtroom. I mean I presided over the Senate when Dick Harpootlian was a member. That, that gives um, it more intrigue for you when you've seen some of these people. You have seen you've seen Alec. Well, before. I mean I you know I knew Alec a little bit. Um have it, as a Gamecock fan. I mean court you side basketball seats and you got Alan Wilson who was the AG when I was in Columbia doing my politics and you got Will Folks of Fitz News sitting there, John Monk of the state. I mean, I just it, it's surreal to me to watch a, a double murder trial in a venue in rural South Carolina and I know half the people in the courtroom. I mean that's just so surreal um to me Evan brown is in miami he's with fox news radio he is here to give us the latest on the um the Alec murdoch murder trial good morning Evan. how are you good morning so what happened yesterday what do we know today that we didn't before the day began
4: well we uh, heard uh, testimony from a couple of people uh both uh one of them was a forensic expert uh the other one was the former uh financial officer from the uh uh the law firm where Alec Murdoch worked uh which used to actually have his family name on it they have since removed that 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 name uh but uh but nonetheless it was the the historic law, law firm that uh, he worked at uh with regard to the forensic expert uh she testified that uh a gunshot residue was found on his clothing that he was wearing the night uh his wife and son were shot and killed Uh, And that uh, months later, a blue raincoat and a blue tarp were found at his mother's home uh, that also had uh, the gunshot residue on them, uh, consistent with the pattern as if he had sort of wrapped them around the gun while firing, Uh, and uh, a health care aide that worked at his mother's home, his mother's elderly. Uh, remembers uh, that uh, the day uh, uh, the day after the murder, that he showed up there with a blue tarp. And, uh, and that's, yeah,
0: is, uh, so are there other? I mean, of the of all the. Witness, and I watched some of the. I mean, I've become infatuated with the trial, and uh, and yesterday was very riveting and interesting. Um, when does Eddie Smith? Do we know when Eddie Smith is uh, scheduled to appear as a witness?
4: I I do not know yet no okay that that's very
0: i didn't mean to interrupt you but um continue and then and then we'll move on
4: sure so uh you know that that's a, a pretty significant uh forensic uh, uh testimony to give uh now look they were this happened at the family's hunting lodge or or, or hunting retreat and uh, uh goes without saying there's probably a lot of firearms there that get fired because that's what you do at a hunting lodge right uh but uh you don't often wrap things around your firearm when you're hunting, right? Unless, you know, you you do it to try to silence the the discharge sound. So, uh that's um uh, you know that that was rather damning. Uh, he also or the jury also heard from the former CFO of that law firm, like I said, who testified that uh money that was supposed to have gone to clients for claims payouts and settlements and things like that from all the personal injury cases that Murdoch was uh, uh, litigating, uh, were issued through um, forged checks into a uh, an account he controlled uh, that, uh, that uh, he uh, was not dispersing any funds to the clients but keeping it all for himself. And the narrative that the prosecutors are trying to weave is that uh, the murders were done to sort of conceal the fact that he was uh, embezzling or stealing uh, millions and millions of dollars from clients uh, and uh, was really in over his head. That's very well explained. Evan. thank you for
0: your time. We may, um, if, if you're available and, and talking about this particular issue, we may touch base another time or two. Thank you very much. You got it. That's kind of an interesting, um, I don't know, update on the uh, on the Ellick Murdoch trial, whether he killed his wife and kid. Let's go back to the phone. I want to make sure we, because um, you're steaming about, not having a million dollars f- well, in, well i mean you've got multiple millions of dollars and we know that <laughs> so so another million right. to you wouldn't be as big a deal as it would to the average working stiff like yours truly and many of our listeners that's funny but it would just go as my father would always say it go in the pile with the rest of it mm-hmm. if it were um in your case oh, you're, but, but no i mean joking, I, I, yeah. the, the point i'm trying to make is we the people have been convinced that there's something about social security that is honorable there's not guys i mean it's it's a scheme it's a devious scheme to put government in control of your retirement. You're depending on government to give you money. You've worked all of your life. You've made contributions. Your business owner has made contributions. And you're, you're hoping and praying that the government won't cut your money. I mean, who does the government think it is? You know, we're, we're deciding on whether or not we're going to cut your benefit 23%. No, let me have my money. Empower me. Trust me to make financial decisions in mind in my family's best interest. And, and if I, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about making 20%. I'm not talking about buying hedge funds or, or private capital or venture capital. I'm talking about the S&P 500. I'm talking about a very, very secure way of investing, a, a, a way of investing that has a long history and track record. 6 to 7% is not out of the norm. I didn't run a number on 12%. I mean, I think that's a little unbelievable. And if somebody sits you down and says, "Hey, for the next 30 years, I'll, I'll guarantee you 12 percent a year annual return," no, you won't. You can't. I mean, that that's unbelievable. But six to seven percent is a very reasonable expectation to have for an investment portfolio. And if you got six or seven percent, you'd have somewhere between a million and a million. And, and a quarter dollars. I mean, that that's a lot of money in, in most of our worlds. Um,
1: it's disgusting well, me, just to think that if they had done that right, in what I would say would be in the interest of the citizens of this country, uh, it, it could have changed so many lives and created general, g-
0: generational, you know, wealth or at least uh, independence, comfort, and financial independence. independence. Yeah. It's not wealth. I mean, having a million bucks is not wealthy. I mean, it is financially independent. I mean, I understand that the guy digging the ditch says, All right, tell me a million dollars isn't wealthy. I mean, that's pretty wealthy, but but you can it, spend it feel, that. It would feel wealthy if you had a million sure, dollars. Sure, and, and you should. I mean, it's, it's there's a sense of financial empowerment and independence that you have. The last thing the government wants, folks, trust me on this, please, the last thing the government wants is an empowered public, an independent public. They want you depending on them to take care of things that they're trying to convince you you can't take care of yourself. That is the notion of liberal government. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe.
5: Yeah, you nailed that right on the head. Uh, They can't have a bunch of people independent of them. Social Security And you're right, it would expose their Ponzi scheme because what's the first thing they say whenever you talk about privatizing social? Oh, you're going to put it in the stock market, you're going to lose all your money. Well, last time I checked, I think the South Carolina State retirement funds in the stock market. And I don't think it's lost all its money. In fact, we talked probably almost a year ago about when Reagan changed the law. In Galveston County, Texas, went off of Social Security, and their average payout is now about $4,500 a month, and they get to keep their account and pass it down to their, their people. But if they were to do that now, they would have to say that $4 trillion in the trust fund that will run out in five years, seven years, is not really there, it's just T-bills that is debt to the government that you're being taxed on to pay for. And as long as they keep their interest rates down around 2%, they can take all that money they want and use it and then put it back, they say. But, you know, it's, it's, it's worse than a Ponzi scheme, I mean. Look Look at what they're doing. They want you dependent. These, these people have gotten almost 100 million people on Medicaid. We've spent $285 billion on food stamps in two years. So they want you dependent. They don't want you independent. Another million dollars for me means I get to help more people. I get to give away more money. Because that's the only thing money means for me is that I can help someone else. Thank you, Joe. A lot of people out there can't get enough.
0: Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. 843 661 0937. Someone else on the phone. Let's go there. Ann and in Florence,
1: morning.
6: Good morning. As someone who is officially retiring today and will receive my first social security check in April, I am the age of 62. I'm disappointed that. Our Social Security system is as it is. Because my husband and I have scrimped and saved all our working years, we have money that we can live on. I'm not completely dependent on my Social Security payment. But if I had been able to do what you're talking about, take my own money and invest it in myself, then I would have a lot more to live off of in my retirement years and not have to depend on government for anything
0: thank you Ann. appreciate that congratulations on your uh, on your retirement hope to join you one of these days i like spending money too much i mean I, i'm serious i've done the math um and I, I just don't see a way for me to retire i don't live a lavish lifestyle i live a very comfortable life but there i, I just like doing things i mean the, and the things i do require money and i'm not afraid to get up and go to work and try and earn a certain percentage of um of money i want to go back to, this is the critical point to remember guys I mean, we can talk about 6% or 7% or 7.5% or, you know, should the government dictate what you can invest in and what you can't invest in? Absent action. In other words, um, we stood up and cheered last night, Republicans and Democrats, when they said that Social Security and Medicare off limits. We're not touching either of those programs. Okay, young working Americans, you ready? The JTs of the world, younger than I am, the, uh, the, um, uh, the uh, gyms of the world, I think Jim's called in and say as a fellow millennial I'm not a fellow millennial I'm a boomer I'm the one screwing all this stuff up and and kind of leaving you guys with the cleanup and aisle for um but but absent any action the the, the Medicare beneficiary will receive about 10 percent or a 10 percent cut uh, but that that's going to happen pretty soon probably within uh, this decade absent any action the Social Security benefit, is going to be cut somewhere between twenty and twenty-five percent. I mean, depending on what uh, what think tank you believe, and I'm not talking about the Biden, the Penn Biden Center for Global Engagement that doesn't have any policy, any work paper, any they do a lot anything. Of thinking of got a there. lot of pictures of Joe Biden. Uh, you know, that's the think tank. Uh, but Joe Biden's not much of a thinker. That's what you would expect from a think tank with Biden or bearing Biden's name. But 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 absent any action, the consensus is that. 10% cut to Medicare, 20 to 25% cut to Social Security, or we're going to raise taxes on the, the young, working-age Americans. That's the only alternative. I mean, you can't fart nuggets of gold but for so long. <laughs> and we've tried that theory. We've tried that rationale for a generation or so. Sooner or later, when I spoke to the Marion Mullins Rotary Club last week, that would have been last Thursday, yeah, last Thursday, um, somebody stood up and asked, you know, can any government issue debt? Yeah, I mean, you can. But, but are, are you very interested in the debt that Guam has to issue? I mean, the, you know, the, the United States of America has proved fairly reliable in paying its bills. The, the dollar is the global currency of preference. We have reaped enormous benefit from that reality. But nothing is eternal. Nothing on this earth lasts forever. So why are we to believe? That we can be just un- unbelievably irresponsible and not face the music at some point in time. So, the only alternative scenarios are cuts to Medicare and Social Security or raising enough revenue to honor the obligations and the actuarial models of Social Security and Medicare moving forward. And the only way to do that, Reb, is to raise more money. And how does government raise money? It raises taxes. But I mean, that's the only alternative. So if you're a young working-age American, you need to be standing on your soapbox, declaring yourself taken advantage of, unless we go to a different model, or formula, a Social Security, and the Republicans need to get on board. So when Rick Scott says, and I understand the political consequences of saying this, but but uh, you know somebody's got to be a grown-up. Somebody's got to be mature enough to look the average American in the eyes and say, hey. You know, we, we scammed you. I mean, this scheme called Medicare, it doesn't work. This scheme called Social Security in the Current Construct, it just doesn't work any longer. And it may have worked with 45 million people, you know, benefiting. It does not work with 70 million people benefiting. The workforce participation rate in America today is 62%. That means 62% of working-age Americans are going up are getting up every morning and going to work at a full-time job. 38% are not. Now, why are the 38% not? Well, a, a lot of reasons. Some have pensions and retirements. Some sold to business. Some are disabled. Um, some don't mind being broke. I mean, I, I don't know why 38% of working-age Americans aren't going to work today. That's a lot of people. That's a big number. And, and a lot of that fraction is 75, 70, uh, 70 million Americans drawing Social Security. And a supplemental income i think charles touched on it earlier some people go into work still drawing social security well you know i'm entitled to that i paid in you did pay in there's no doubt about it but we would all be better off if we had a private model and at the end of your work life you had somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars to invest with reggie armstrong and and reap the benefits of all the hard work you have done over the 30 years And and you're not reduced to hoping the government sends you your check on time, hoping the government doesn't cut your check by 25. But imagine, I mean, that, that frustrates me. And how there aren't more people angry beyond belief at that. So I've worked 30 years. I paid in. You've already spent my money. And I'm hoping and praying that you don't cut my benefit by 25%. Wow. You're making me mad. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. This is MFR. Good morning.
7: Good morning. Uh, hey, gentlemen. I could write a dissertation on Medicare and Medicaid, but I, I don't want to get my blood pressure up this morning. I'd rather change it back just for a minute. Uh, like you, I know a bunch of the people in the courtroom, um, and I feel like I know all of them after watching and then to my wife, who's keeping up with it, I think Uncle Eddie is supposed to be there today. I think so. I, think so. I think so. I think you, yeah, I believe he is. But, um, I, you know, the whole thing about the, the rain jacket, I don't believe they collected it for four months. So that goes back to the whole thing about there being GSR. You know, we, in the South, I mean, it's not uncommon to, to, to have GSR all over you. I got stopped in Charlotte Airport after I had surgery and they made me strip down, and it was because I had it on my hat because
0: I shoot all the time. <laughs> but, but tell people what that is for clarity. I mean, I think I understand it, but tell people what that is.
7: It's gunshot residue is correct? It is. So if you fire a firearm, you are going to end up with some sort of gunpowder residue on you. Uh, if you go to a dove hunt, um, for most people, if you go to a dove hunt, you happen to be wearing a ball cap um if you take that ball cap off and you set it down you know in the back seat of your truck and you come back um a month later and you put it back on and you go through the airport don't be shocked if you get hit by the dog who's the bomb dog um because that's what they're they're picking up on is the 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 gunpowder is what they're after or well what they're sniffing rather um you know but as far as um i don't know if that answers the question or not but but that's what it is um but as far as Alec goes. I-, I don't know that they're making a great case. The, the dude has the morals of Roman Emperor Caligula. Uh, however, I don't think he he's got the 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 who's supposed to pull the trigger himself. Not what he called Hideon? Probably. I don't see that. <laughs> I could see that happening with all the financial crimes, but I-, I don't see him being the guy. And and that's just my opinion. But
0: thank you, That's that's fairly well explained. Hold on to that for a second, because after the hour, we don't have enough time to get into that. Um, and once again, who am I to do a psychoanalysis, but, but I got four hours and and I got a radio show and we got somewhat of an audience and you guys are interested in some of the things, same things that I'm interested in. And I think it's such a, uh, an experiment in human psychology, you know, what man is capable of under strenuous circumstances. I don't know. I mean, I think we're beginning to, to put a puzzle together, but, but as the caller said, there's still a few pieces that don't make any sense take a break back in a few you know we talk about health care the majority of us don't worry about social security we know there's a point in time that it's going to be there in some way shape or form some capacity and and, and some percentage there will be supplemental retirement income available to the majority of americans we can't wait on health care i mean that's something that we have to deal with every single day of our lives we know it's complicated we know that everyone's situation is different um, there, there are multiple options, not many good ones, but multiple options I wish to choose from um, when, when, when planning for your health insurance needs, you need to consult a professional. No question about that, that there's a guy that I've met named Christian Levis. He's at Real Choice Healthcare. Um, he's been helping people get the right coverage at the best rate for years. Listen to me real quick. If you're a couple under 65, he can save you between 500 and and $1,000 a month with better coverage. I'm endorsing this. You owe it to yourself to at least make a call, better educate yourself. If you're paying for your own health insurance, if you're on a COBRA plan, if you're uninsured, call Christian Levis at 864-362-4700 or go to realchoicehealthcare.com. Once again, if you're under the age of 65, reasonably healthy, you don't need maternity coverage. You don't need all these other, um, you know, Obamacare add-ons. You can save 30 to 60% off. It's a quality plan. It's chosen and managed by you, not the government. It's your health. It's your choice. It's real choice healthcare. Once again, Rev set up a Zoom meeting with Christian and myself And you've listened to me struggle with health care pretty much the entire time we've been on the airwaves. I think this is something very worthy of your consideration, especially if you're healthy and don't like the government mandating certain things of you that are incredibly expensive. So call Christian Levis at 864-362-4700 or go to realchoicehealthcare.com. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze. Good morning.
8: Hey, what's up, guys? You know, to tell you the truth, <laughs> I would almost rather talk about God or exercise or anything else, but because I felt like I just waste my breath. But at the end of the day, kid, what people don't realize is Social Security was never. They did not mean. They may have told you this, but it was never intended to be good for our Americans. Never. It is a tax. It is a tax, and you're lucky to get a 1% return. It's a tax that you get a 1% rebate back if you're lucky. Is that about it? I think it's 1%. And again, your yeah, return on
0: investment. Pretty much. I mean, it's less than 1% most times, about 0.8%. Right.
8: Exactly. So, I mean, quit being so stupid as to thinking that the government gives a rat's behind about you. they do is they'll
0: breeze appreciate it i mean think of this guys so last night in, in a moment of uh, unanimity the republicans and democrats celebrated together um, when the president said and i'll quote it i got the uh, the transcript here so tonight let's all agree and apparently we are let's stand up for seniors stand up and show them we will not cut social security we will not cut medicare those benefits belong to the American people. They earned it. So let's let's break this one sentence down. You ready? We will not cut Medicare. We will not cut Social Security. Okay, absent any action. Let's say that Republicans and, and, and Democrats in a moment of unanimity agreed that we're not going to cut Social Security. We're not going to cut Medicare. They just basically agreed that we're going to raise young working people's um, taxes. I mean, there there is no other way around it. Either you keep the current construct, the current formula, the current actuary and you cut Medicare by about 10 to 12% and you cut social security by somewhere between 20 and 25% or you raise more revenue. But I mean, there is no alternative plan. You got money coming in and money going out. No, but they've already squandered the model. But, but wait a minute, you're forgetting the plan. Raise the debt limit. Put it on the pile forever? Well, I mean, that, that's the argument they're making. I guess. That, that we'll just keep spending a trillion dollars a year that we don't have, and eventually the debt will be $100, billion, $100 trillion. Um, you know, th- this is Crazy. kind of interesting to me, Rev. We, we talked about the Cold War. Remember when the uh, the good professor from Belarus came in and talked about the Cold War? She kind of agreed with me that um, Reagan got too much credit. I mean, Reagan deserves a lot of credit, but but he gets all the credit. It was really capitalism and communism. And and you had a country with a GDP half the size. you had a communist country with a GDP half the size of the capitalist country. So who wins that war? GDP of uh, you know at the time probably twelve trillion dollars, capitalist nation, GDP of six trillion dollars, Communist nation, they're going they're both going to try and spend as much equally on military. I mean that, that's a pretty easy argument to make. The capitalist country with twice the GDP will probably break the other country before the communist nation with half the GDP breaks uh, the, the, the American nation. But we had 45 million Americans on Social Security in 2000. We're at about 70 million Americans today. So, so when they say we're not going to cut Medicare, we're not going to cut Social Security, that they're basically in dog whistles saying because we're going to raise your taxes— We're going to generate more revenue because there's no other way. Forget that we squandered the promise. I mean, there is no lockbox, as Al Gore said, because he went off on this extraterrestrial climate change rage. (laughs) I mean, that's when he was somewhat of a serious politician and trying to, you know, win the presidency when when he said, you know, the lockbox and I'll not trust the, excuse me, I'll not touch the Social Security Trust Fund. It'll remain solvent under my watch. It'll never be threatened with insolvency and all this other um, nonsensical things. But but the you know absent any action, Medicare will have to be adjusted. Social Security will be forced to cut benefits by probably twenty to twenty five percent. And everybody in America celebrated. Every Republican stood up and clapped and applauded and cheered. Every Democrat clapped and applauded and cheered. Why? Because it makes it easier for them to get reelected.
1: They're not going to touch that. Third I mean, they shirk
0: the responsibility of doing their job. Their job is to address the serious issues facing America. Our financial issue is the most severe threat to our national security. Forget Ukraine and China and Russia and, and some of the Iran and Iraq. Forget some of those nations that, that we believe or know don't care much for our existence and, and you know, place in the world stage. I mean, our problem is our debt. And the biggest drivers of that debt are Social Security and Medicare. And when a president, a liberal Democrat president says that's off limits, conservative Republicans stand up and cheer the insanity of that, the, the, the insanity that they believe that's then in, in the nation's best interest to stand up and cheer on a liberal president. When he says these cuts are off limits, they can't be off limits. Let's go to the phone.
1: Joseph in Florence. Good morning.
9: Hey, man. So, Hey, I'm just, I'm just kind of wondering Ken here. Um, you know, obviously, you're not getting your information from Google. Uh, you have to be well-read and going down to uh, the library to get your books. What 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 books are you reading,
0: man? Uh, I read the the Social Security report. I read the Board of Economic Advisors in South Carolina juxtaposed to. I mean, the the Board of Economic Advisors in South Carolina take a lot of information from the Federal Reserve. Um, I, I read a lot of the beige book, the Fed beige book. Would be another place where they talk about the liabilities of Social Security and, and Medicare. The only reason the Fed has an interest in it is, is they're they're backstopping some of the debt. I mean, they're they're pre they're they're creating the currency that allows the government to appropriate money they don't have. So I feel like that they're going to give you somewhat of an honest accounting. I mean, it'll be politicized without doubt. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But but th- we can't deny the reality that Social Security and Medicare are driving the majority of our debt problem in America. And when we as a as a country, when our political leadership cheers and applauds the fact that we're not going to do anything about it, that's alarming and concerning to me.
9: So do some of these reports tell you where we're kind of uh, allocating money to uh, to take away from Social Security and Medicare or are, are, are we just kind of? throwing in like hey this is my opinion on this this is where this money is coming from this is this is why we're going into you know deficit.
0: No the the Fed report offers very little opinion. I mean I got to believe that when they put it together it's couched with some political opinion but but it's hard for me to discern what their objectives are other than report the kind of the state of the country's financial affairs i mean that's kind of what what they try to do as best they can i mean they set monetary policy they try to measure inflation and and you know um address inflation by raising rates or quantitative easing or quantitative tightening it's probably as less political as any reporting you can find it's still somewhat politicized and i still question um whether the Fed is giving—I mean, I know they're giving us an honest accounting, but are they giving us an honest narrative about what they believe happens in the event that, that we get to thirty-five or forty or forty-five trillion um, dollars of debt? But when it comes to the allocation of funds, we, we don't budget any longer. I got on a, on a, kind of my soapbox a couple of weeks ago when Kevin McCarthy cut a deal with the Freedom Caucus. I was led to believe part of the deal was getting back to the original way we appropriate. I mean, that's the most important thing Congress does. They appropriate that they, they, they go through a budget. Let's say the defense budget and they, they argue over the defense budget. But, but since 2006, we've operated basically on continuing resolutions and omnibus bills. And that means that the the spending is on autopilot and, and defense is on autopilot and social security is on autopilot and Medicare is on autopilot. Well, obviously we got to service the debt, um, We've got, we've got four line items in our budget that will exceed a trillion dollars probably in the next 24 months, maybe in the next 12 months, depending on what some of the interest rates are when we reissue some debt that's kind of rolling. So some of the debt's maturing got to be refinanced. It'll be refinanced at a higher interest rate. So once that happens, Medicare spending will be in excess of a trillion dollars. Social Security spending will be in excess of a trillion dollars. Um, defense will be in excess of a trillion dollars and service to debt will be in excess of a trillion dollars. That doesn't leave a lot of money to spend on anything else. I mean, it, it, you know, some people say 65% The the fed leads me to believe it's closer to 80% of all our money is spent before it's ever collected. Um, it's just, there's only about 20% of all the money the government collects that, that, that Congress has some discretion on what it can do you know whether we build a road or invest in education or, or whatever you know update or upgrade airports. I mean there, there are a lot of things that, that are interesting that Congress talks about but, but they can't do it because these other you know um, spending or expenditure line line items in the budget are on autopilot.
9: So listen, I, one more one more quick question. Uh, and and this is this is just for my my own personal thing maybe 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 somebody else will will get enlightened by this three hundred and sixty million people in America uh, i mean round or about right population wise yeah three thirty three thirty five yeah so uh each one is paying twenty uh, around twenty six percent uh that's with you know if if you take out the eight percent uh that's for social security medicare eight percent and uh Worker, or the employer contribution, is another eight percent on top of that. In your opinion, where is all that money going to, man? Where
0: but see, but 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 you don't to? have three hundred thirty-five working-age Americans. Sixty-two percent of our working-age Americans are contributing, uh, you know, to to what the government has to spend. Thank you for the call. That's kind of an interesting and very thoughtful way to look at it. And I don't—I mean—he's probably questioning some of the where. Uh, I get my information from. And and look, guys, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I mean, I don't have a monopoly on telling the truth. I mean, I read a lot about this stuff. I think you've, you know, you trust me to read as much as I know how about this stuff and try to understand uh, to the best of my abilities where we are and where it looks like we're headed and what our significant issues appear to be. Um, But it's not 330 million working Americans. Um, uh, What is it, 80 million households? You know that that file taxes consisting of how many million people
1: are actually receiving the benefits?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, there, there's there's what well, I mean. That goes back to the old analogy, pushing and pulling the you know the cart or or riding in the uh, in the wagon. And um, but but the, where I get my information from, by and large, is is the Fed's reporting. And once again, do I believe that Jerome Powell is apolitical? No. Do I think Janet Yellen is apolitical? Of course not. I mean, everybody is political. You are, I am, everybody is. There's something in your DNA. But I do believe that the Fed report, the beige book, some of the forecasting is probably as non political as we can get. When CNBC or Bloomberg or Fox Business have a report about the state of the economy, what looks to be, you know, what what, what, what clouds appear to be brewing on the horizon, that there's always a political objective. Uh, you, you just got to believe that. I mean, somebody's always up to something in the world of reporting. The feds' numbers are what the numbers are. D- do I believe the narrative of Jerome Powell is politicized to some degree? Yeah, of course I do. But it didn't stop thirty-two trillion from being thirty-two trillion. I mean, you can't talk thirty-two trillion into being twenty-seven trillion. Th- does that make sense? I mean, the numbers are what the numbers are, and the federal reports reflect the numbers as. As, as 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 accurate as any that i can imagine we'll take a break we'll be back in just a few moments i'm not sure what the previous caller was insinuating maybe he's arguing that there's enough money i mean we're talking about cuts to this and cuts to that but it made i mean brev you, you you listened i mean yeah. it sounded to me like he was arguing that there's a, i'm making a lot about i mean i'm making a lot of noise challenging about your a analysis
1: a little bit Well, well. i mean okay like mean. But,
0: but he used the number 330 million workings there's 160 million workers in america American, the, the American government spent $6.27 trillion in 2022. So, so for argument's sake, let's take the numbers. Let's take 160 million workers in America to fund the federal government. I mean, that's kind of what we fund the government taxes. Um, there, there are a lot of different kinds of taxes, property taxes. Um, I mean, that goes to fund local government, their state taxes, but the federal government operates by and large on income tax. mean, uh, that's, that's the, um, I mean, as, as Dr. Thickpin famously said, you know, the world changed the day the income tax was instituted. Mm. Uh, he who has the goal makes the rules, and the federal government now has has the money. But but let's let's take I'm I'm gonna blow your mind with some numbers here because I think the caller was saying, well, what do you get this information that we need to cut from? Well, I mean, let, let's for argument's sake, we don't cut anything, and we keep allowing the government to spend 6.27 trillion dollars as it did in 2022. There's 160 million working Americans. I mean, that's the um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Take it for what it's worth. Somebody I mean, asked me where I got the information. That's not red state. That's not bluestate.com. That's the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Said so there's 159 million 747 workers. Round off 160 million workers to raise 6.27 trillion dollars. That 160 million people need to be taxed at forty thousand dollars per. The average income in America today is about $54,000. So every single American needs to pay $40,000 in some form of tax, whether it's income tax or whatever. I'm mean, going to defund the federal government. Forget property tax, defund education, forget local ad valorem and fees and fines. I'm talking about defund the federal government. And I don't know what the, what the previous caller's analysis were. I don't know if he's been... Um, sarcastic or being uh, um, a little bit disparaging of what I've tried to argue, but he said there's 330 million people to 12.5%. Well, I mean, let's just look at simple math. 160 million workers in America today. That's about 61.6% of working age Americans are going to work. You'd have to tax every one of those 160 million Americans to the tune of $40,000 per to generate the money it takes to fund the federal government without deficit spending. I mean, that's an egregious and absurd amount of money. (laughs) But I'll give you another example. 61% of Americans don't make $40,000 a year. I mean, to suggest that we're not going to have to do something is asinine and absurd. And if that's what the previous caller was suggesting, then I just don't get that. I mean, we can debate and argue and disagree, and I accept that. And I think I've been respectful of those who disagree with me. But, but if the insinuation is there's no problem here that there should be plenty of money to get done, whatever we need to get done, there is. There absolutely is. If we taxed 160, 000, 160 million workers to the tune of $40,000 per, we can do whatever we choose to do, including exactly what we're doing today.
1: Listening to that speech last night, it sounds like all we have to do is make
0: billionaires pay their fair share. Well, I think people are reluctant to understand what a trillion dollars is. I mean if you did it at twenty thousand per, it'd be about three trillion, two hundred billion dollars. So you gotta double that. So you're somewhere around forty. Now, once again, the majority of workers don't make forty thousand dollars. So you take every penny they make and a little more now get the millionaires and gazillionaires and and that's always where liberals want to look you know those not paying their fair share i don't know what your fair share is i mean rev would probably agree that a fair share is different than something that i would agree um you know the fair comes to town in october is what i've always (laughs) believed but but you know to suggest that there's not a problem here we got all these workers making all this money generating all this revenue yeah we got 160 million Let's tell 160 million Americans, "Hey, yo, was 40 grand at the end of every year, so we can do whatever it is we choose to do." And let's see how that. Maybe that's what we need to do. We think January 6 was a riot. Mm. It wasn't baby crap. <laughs> alongside what we see, <laughs> if that happened, let's let's go to the phone. Hey,
1: we'll go to Scott in Florence. Scott, how are you on the air? Hey guys,
10: great uh, job talking about a pretty boring subject matter and i agree with you the state of the union last night uh was quite entertaining and this is the exact point that really left a bad taste in my mouth but first i wanted to kind of touch on i've got a lot of questions that i think you guys can really chew through and uh give some clarity on Uh, i appreciate that you've talked about al gore and his lockbox I don't recall how he and Tom Foley and Jim Wright and that cast of characters who ran the federal legislature back then did it. But I don't recall how they raided the lockbox or how it actually happened, because supposedly prior to that period of time, Social Security was supposed to be separate and apart and not part of what the federal legislature could dip into and spend and I'd appreciate you guys explaining that because I don't remember it as well as I can. Um, also, I want to take uh, issue with Dr. Thigpen. Uh, yeah, the income tax kind of changed everything, but all power emanates from the muzzle of the gun when it comes to the government. If they didn't have their guns, they wouldn't be able to take your house if you paid pro- didn't pay your property taxes. So, you know, eventually some guy with a gun shows up with a yellow tag and puts it on your front door if you don't pay your property taxes. So I kind of take difference with that. Uh but also I I, I hear the baby boomers and I'm 1963 when I was born, so I'm the very tail end of it. Um I hear the baby boomers complain about oh you can't take our social security and uh raise taxes on it or lower benefits. But wasn't it us or the baby boomers, and I, 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 I think I'm more part of a lost half generation than really part of the baby boomers, um, you know, people born in the late 50s, early, early 60s. Um, it wasn't it our responsibility to keep our eye on the federal legislators we elected and to, to keep an eye on those folks and make sure they didn't do what they did to the quote unquote Social Security lockbox? I, I, I mean, it's our fault we allowed them to do it. It's, it's, you know, maybe the generation a little older than us or maybe I have no idea, but it's our responsibility. You know, the fact that they do it and we watch it and we don't do anything about it. We just keep reelecting the same schlubs, which leads us to the whole term limit debate. Would we be better off, you know, electing new people every six year cycle or should we have these? More experienced people, you know, Nancy Pelosi being elected in 1988. So I know that's a lot to chew on. I thank, thank, thank you guys for addressing this subject matter, and you do it in such an entertaining way. So I'll get off the phone and let you guys kind of <laughs> go through the wanderings of my mind. I okay,
0: you'll appreciate you <laughs> well, it. I can relate to that. Rest assured, <laughs> sound like you're a victim of the busy head syndrome um, as I am. I would encourage people. I mean, if you want to know where to go look and find some of this data. And um, and once again, I'm talking about audited data. I'm talking about the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I'm talking about the Social Security Administration. There, there's a place you could go on SSA.gov. I mean, I've done it a million times. SocialSecurityAdministration.gov, and they do kind of a um, actuarial status of where the trust funds are as we speak. There are there there's money in the trust fund. I mean, there's a couple of trillion dollars in the trust fund, but. There's more coming out than going in, and it's gone from. Uh, I mean, in the good old days, there was 253 or 60 or 70 percent of um uh, as a percentage of in and out. In other words, we've got X number of dollars going out, X number of dollars going in. When you had about 11 workers to one beneficiary, you had about 260 or 70 percent of uh what what I call I think their word is report year outgo. Here we go with with weird language in government accounting, but um, but but go online and, and go to some of these summaries, actuary status of the Social Security trust funds. Rev's looking at me like, really? Um, well, I mean, I, I've done it a hundred times. I've done it a <laughs> thousand times. It's my job, man. <laughs> that's, that's a thousand times more than I have. Well, I mean, it, but it's my job to try and educate not you, the listener, but myself so I can be a more informed host. I mean, I wouldn't expect you to 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 leave um gamecock central or tiger net and say wow now seems to be the perfect time for me to go to the um the actuarial (laughs) status of the social security trust i'll go read the fed beige book today yeah but you know i get that but but and and i'm not here to enlighten anybody but i've got to be somewhat enlightened to be effective at hosting a radio show i mean the busy head syndrome is not good enough the busy head syndrome has to be combined with some degree of, you know, accepting responsibility to do the work necessary to talk about these things in an informed way. I didn't say a right way. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we need to be worried. I am extremely concerned about Social Security and Medicare. I think we've waited too late. I mean, I think we, we've gotten to the point now that any adjustment we make is going to be cataclysmic. I mean, it really and truly is. I think there were things we could have done 20 years ago. That would have eased up, and we did. I mean, we did some things. We raised some um, beneficiary ages. You know, I think when um, when it originally came out, I was born in 1963. I think I was going to be eligible for full benefit at 65. That's 67 now. It might be even 70. I don't read it. You know, you get the personal statements. Well, you did. You don't get it much anymore. But there's a uh, kind of an online. You log in to make sure you know you know what you're getting at a certain point in time, and should you wait the 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 advanced two or three years. But but the 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 amount at the beginning of report year, and I'm talking about the balance, but it's been a decline about 18 consecutive years. There's more going out than going in. And when the amount at the beginning of report year, as a percentage of report year outgo was 260 or 70%, we had 11 workers and one recipient. Now we've got about three and a half to four workers per one recipient. We've gone from 35 million people in 1990 to about 70 million today. We've doubled the number of people drawing Social Security in the last 30 years, 35 years, and we're living longer. I mean, I'm not a rocket scientist. This isn't rocket science. It doesn't take, um, you know, a rocket scientist to figure out. So last night, the loudest, I'm beating on, the loudest applause line was when Joe Biden said, I'm not touching Social Security and I'm not touching Medicare. If we were a nation of politically literate people, we would have booed to the top of our lungs when he said that because we would have understood the financial dilemma and dynamic that lies ahead. Something is going to have to be done. They, they, They predict by the year 2023, excuse me, 2033, Social Security will be insolvent. You know what that means, Rev? There's no money in the bank, and there's not enough coming in to cover the obligations going out. Now we're, we've got we got a lot coming in, not as much as we did, but we got a lot coming in, and we've got this fund balance. So we're taking some from the fund balance and the money coming in, and we're honoring our obligations. By 2033, four or five, we're not going to have any in the fund balance because it's depleted, and we don't have enough people working to pay the benefits of the people who have turned, um, you know, retirement age. It's, it's not a real complicated formula. When you think about it, we've had many, many years of more going in than going out. And we're benefiting today by having those many, many years of money going in that was not going out. But we're beginning to deplete some of the ballots. And it's not called a fund balance. Once again, it's called, um, I mean, I'll mean, i give you the language. I mean, I got it online here. You ready? Mm-hmm. Amount at beginning of report year as a percentage of report year outgo. I mean, that's in the actuarial status of the Social Security trust funds, and that is on the Social Security website. And, and, and I don't expect you to go look at that and try to understand it. I mean, I got more notes in my phone than you could imagine about things that matter tremendously um, to me. It's our nation's health and well-being. It's the driver of the debt. And I'm not anywhere near as worried about Ukraine or Iran or Iraq or Russia as I am us not being able to take care of our own business. I can't do a damn thing about what Putin does. I mean, I have no control at all over Xi and what China looks like 30 years from now. But I'll be damned if I'll let us just continue to spend money we don't have, honoring benefits we should have never made, and will eventually weaken our nation to a point of it not being the preeminent superpower on the planet. And I am guilty of leaving my kids a less prosperous America than I was left before me. That's the responsibility people my age have. We've got to have these very controversial and confrontational conversations about our financial well-being and you can't talk about our financial well-being without talking about social security medicare and medicaid period take a break back in a minute 843-661-0937 and i want to make clear this was a bipartisan moment i mean the, the 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 legacy media celebrated last night and today the bipartisan moment Politicians from both parties agreeing that we're not going to touch Social Security, we're not going to touch Medicare. To me, and the National Review, it was a grotesque bipartisan (laughs) moment. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Hey, Jeff.
11: Hey, good morning. Um, Interesting topic. We've talked about it, and we've talked about Social Security being an issue. Um, But let's let's go back and correct some facts. Uh, Al Gore was brought up with his lockbox. The lockbox you realize, was never implemented because Al Gore lost the election, right?
0: Uh, that would be a yes. partisan... Yes. Yes. I mean, yes, You think Al Gore yes. was going to implement a lockbox?
11: Well, what was the lockbox?
0: Can you tell me? Yeah, but, but uh, let me ask you a question. Well, How does Gore have the ability to appropriate as a president? He
11: doesn't. But what he of course he doesn't. Is, Therefore, what he said
0: means absolutely it. nothing, Jeff. It was yeah. a soundbite, a talking point. There's nothing Gore could have done as an executive to stop Congress from appropriating whatever they choose to appropriate to make up the deficit at Social Security.
11: Okay, so so the lockbox, and I'll just answer it for you. The lockbox was taking the Social Security Trust Fund and putting it into not the general fund. Okay, bad idea or a good idea?
0: Ah, It would have been insolvent quicker than it was uh, maintaining the general. The general fund has the ability to appropriate and the general fund has the ability to borrow from the Fed. The, the executive fund would have not. So, the, I mean, it probably would have been better because it forced us to do something okay, sooner than okay. we have.
11: Yeah, the answer is it was a good idea.
0: Well, I mean, that's uh, your answer. That's so, not the answer.
11: Did you? Okay. So, either way, you know, taking the money out. Well, I mean, of the that, no, no, there's either no way either
0: decision. way. That's your answer, but that's not the answer. There's a lot of other answers that people do have that disagree with you. We, we,
11: we could go round and round here. but So, you're okay with the Social Security Trust being in the general fund? The answer is no. You're not Kevin. Well, I mean, no.
0: I'm okay with it being in the general fund if we exhibited some ability to restrain ourselves from spending.
11: Okay, so do you trust politicians to do that?
0: No, but I don't trust the president either. Okay.
11: Well, I mean,
0: I mean, you, you're asking me to trust. You're, tru- you're asking me to trust Al Gore or Donald Trump, whomever the president is. You're asking <laughs> me to trust them to do something Congress has never been willing to do, and that is change the formula.
11: the the, the, the issue is what was the trust fund okay so the lockbox in the 90s okay what did we have coming in every year we had a surplus
0: up until about okay. 94.
11: yep we had a surplus going in so so we had a surplus going in because of Gingrich and uh, bill clinton working together cutting to government's waste spending get everything right we had a good economy so there was a trust. But why were they trying? But to we also about had about eight
0: and a half sure. workers per one recipient. We're down to about three and a half to four now. We had less okay. than 40 million people receiving benefits. We've got about 75 million now. Okay. Is,
8: this
0: a, is this a news flash to anybody? No. The
11: baby boomers were but but, but,
0: but we're not doing anything about it. Well, so just, just hear me out. Okay. In
11: I'm sorry. I've been rude. I'm sorry, yeah, Jeff. In, no. In 2007, the first baby boomers retired. The last baby boomers will start collecting and retiring in 2020, or uh, 2030. We've known this and the government's known this since the baby boomer generation started. And they've been planning for this, but they haven't, they kept using bad fiscal policy this whole time. There was money in the trust fund. Social security solvency was not an issue. But the problem is, Social Security is collected on what? Wages. Guess what? You're, you're not collecting on capital gains where most of wealth now in the United States is generated. It's not taxed. The Social Security Trust Fund isn't being funded because a large portion of the money is out of the purview of that tax. Do you see that?
0: I see that, but the, 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 the money invested in—the the passive income income earned by America's wealthiest was largely generated by creating businesses, becoming wealthy. When they ran the businesses, created the businesses, they paid a lot of income tax. Did uh, Tim Cook start Apple? Did he found Apple? Nobody—I mean, he earns a big we got, we got to take a break, Jeff. You can hang on, and we'll get back to you on the other side. Back in just a few but you keep fighting right you keep <laughs> fighting the good fight against authority i just think that's such an interesting um song and john mellencamp was the consummate rebel in that day that would have been the john cougar days right uh, but it would have been john cougar is that what he transitioned into um it was it in the Lord? midpoint he I was john cougar mellencamp okay so john cougar john cougar became john cougar mellencamp john cougar mellencamp became john mellencamp right I think it was, Did, he was Johnny Cougar. Okay. Wasn't he, first? The, yeah, Johnny Cougar, then John Cougar, then John Cougar Mellencamp, yep. and now finally John Mellencamp—the evolution of a rock star, <laughs> right, Ralph? <Rev? laughs> and now he just seems crotchety. Yeah, no question about it. <laughs> hey, um, is Jeff still there? Yeah, yeah he held
1: on, and it, it to me, it doesn't sound like you guys are in total disagreement. Here. No, we're not. I mean, it,
0: we, we probably disagree on on whether an executive. I mean, there's some politicking here. There's no question about that. I think one of the first things you need to understand is. This is kind of a um the Social Security trust funds aren't really trust funds. I mean, I know they're referred to as trust funds. You, you got the old age and survivors insurance and then you got the disability insurance. They're both called trust funds, but in all honesty, somebody texted me a second ago and said, Okay, what happens to the money that's in the bank? I mean, you got money in, money out. I get that, but you got a balance, you got a fund balance, so to speak. Um, we're we're investing in T bonds. I mean the money sitting there is making money. I mean there's a um there's a market rate of interest that is paid to the money in the trust bonds or in the trust fund for, for the bonds they hold. I mean, it's you know, federal government debt. That's when you say they're loaning the money out to fund government. Well, well, in essence they're seeking a return. It wouldn't make any sense for the money to sit there and make nothing. I mean, you've got a couple of trillion dollars in the bank, why not invest in something so you're kind of loaning yourself you know, some of the money. The money's not in the bank. There are bonds and T bills in the bank, so to speak, and and they're making interest, which is one of the few smart things government does, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, let's go to the phone, Jeff. You're still there, right? Yes, sir.
1: Thanks for holding on.
11: Yes. So you, you're correct. Like you know, um, we're, we're not far off. I'm just trying to get to to a point where we we recognize that Social Security is is um, it, it's it's not a um, it's, it's not a requirement. People have been paying into this trust fund. It's a system that pays forward. We know that. And we knew that there was a baby boomer wave coming. Okay? And so that's why it was important to try and, you know, lockbox it, set it aside, take it out of the general fund, invest it like you just talked about, and so it would be there. They didn't do that. And when I say they, I mean government. I'm not saying Republicans, Democrats. It's, it's the government. Okay. Um, but, but you have to, there is a sinister side to this. Um, they want to point to the fact that it's going to be insolvent. They love using the fact that it's not going to be there. If you would have poll people and say, do you think you're going to collect social security? Most people are going to say, no, it's not going to be there. And, and because of that, you talk about the austerity measures, you got to raise the age, got to cut the benefits. Well, there's another way to do it, and you have to think about that. If you were to eliminate the cap
0: on wages, okay, and I'm for I that, Jeff. That, that'll I'm for yeah. that. I, I'm for eliminating yeah. the cap. Okay, so so you can you can cut
11: or you can fund um, appropriately. Should uh, should uh, people who earn uh, their money through capital gains and and Uh, other means be exempt from paying Social Security tax? The answer is no. I mean, you know, there is a massive shift that has happened in their tax code that allows the wealthy to never pay taxes like an average person. And that's wrong. And last night they talked about that. Do you believe that corporations, what was it, the, the 50 largest corporations paid zero taxes? Do you believe that to be... Good for America.
0: No, and and broke people don't lobby government did to write tax law,
11: right? And when you talk about you know that number you put out there that says you know there's three hundred and thirty million people the caller earlier said, and if you would tax them for their social security liability or the government uh fund liability, um, it would be forty thousand per person. Well, the fact is half of America makes under forty thousand dollars.
0: About sixty percent. It's about sixty percent.
11: Yeah. Yeah, that, that, and is that a sustainable economy? If you have that many people falling that far behind, what do you think America looks like in 10 years if you don't try and fix that problem?
0: Well, I mean, I've said this before, Jeff, and I'm one of the few Republicans wealth, I mean, the, 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 the income inequality in America has to be addressed in some way, shape, or form. I mean, Rev Rev looked to me startled ten years ago when I said I'm one of the few Republicans will agree that income inequality is bad for America. The American experiment has to—it can't be that deeply divided, um, socioeconomically. And uh, you know what? The answer is I don't know. It sounds to me like I don't want to put words in I your mouth. Well, but but let, let me ask you this question: So, are you in favor of taxing passive income? And I'm talking about capital gains as ordinary income.
8: It, it, if
11: if it is truly that, look. If a, one individual sells their home and makes a profit, does a they should not have to pay capital uh, uh, any more than a capital gains rate on that? It's not ordinary income. But Tim Cook and people who get stock options, Elon Musk, that's how they get their wealth. You you know you see these CEOs like, oh, my salary is one dollar. What we, you know, so th- there's it's a it's a it's a game. And it's and it's rigged against the American average American. But uh, but I'll ask you this: if you really want to look at that uh, the distribution of wealth, Republicans talk about that. They they want to they, and and I am going to use the word Republican here because y- you can't deny this. They say that they want to tax the rich. They want to take money from the rich and give it to the poor.
0: Right? The, I mean, you'll you'll own that, right? That's a that's a new phenomenon within the Republican Party. Yes. Okay. Um,
11: go back and read Theodore Roosevelt. Okay, old rough and ready, you know, the, the man who came up with the estate tax. And he talked about what it would look like in America if you have this generational wealth class, kind of like the czars were in Russia, kind of like, you know, England, if you want to look at a system that's really broken, look at the income distribution in, in England. It's terrible. Um, In America right now, like 95% of the wealth, and these numbers are not going to be accurate. I I haven't looked at it in a while. But in America, 95% of the wealth is owned by about 3% of the population. When I say wealth, I mean everything. Properties, stocks, um, wages, cash, gold, everything is owned by 3% of the people. Does that sound like an America that... The founding fathers would have thought was sustainable.
0: No, but you would agree that was the impetus that got Donald Trump elected president. But it's 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 a fallacy. No, but I mean you would agree to that. I mean, that, that, but but the the narrative you're espousing is the reason Donald Trump got elected president. There are people in the world who believe. Uh, the people in America. I don't want to speak for the world. There are people in America who know with, with every fiber of their being that the game is rigged is stacked to, to, to their disadvantage, is stacked to advantage the wealthy and connected and affluent, and and Trump spoke to that in a way that nobody ever has. I mean, I'm not saying he did anything, and I'm not saying he intended to do anything, but the reason Donald Trump got elected is exactly the the scenario that you just described.
11: Totally, totally agree. He he spoke to that, to, to no, he spoke to a portion of that, okay, that, um, I don't think quite understands the predicament of of, of the American uh, average American. They feel it. They understand they're in a hole, and that that the, the light's getting further away. Um, but I, but that wasn't your guy. That that guy doesn't, and I'm I'm not trying to talk about it. He just doesn't care to solve that problem. Okay, and and I'm not saying Democrats have a good answer for it. But I'm saying that problem exists. Trump played on that problem. Uh, he, he spoke to those people. What he said resonated with them. But it wasn't a problem he was ever going to solve.
0: Fair enough. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Kind of an interesting conversation or back and forth there. We normally have fine lines of disagreement. Obviously, there's some, some disagreement there and some agreement of what um, – and I've said this before, and I'll be – I mean, and this is where I get in trouble with the Republican Party, so to speak, the pro-growth policies – um, you know, so some of the conservative ideologies. We've created a an America where, where too few own too much. Wow. Are you a capitalist or not? Yes, I'm a capitalist. Absolutely, I'm a capitalist. I'm not for crony capitalism. And, and both parties have given in to the wishes of the unbelievably wealthy and affluent that they have the ability to influence the political world in a way that we should not allow. And it's not just individuals. It's not the Rothschilds or the DuPonts or the Kennedys or some of these other extremely wealthy families. It's the Pfizer's of the world. It's the GM's of the world. It's the Ford's of the world. Look, they're doing exactly what I would do if I ran Pfizer. I mean, if I were CEO of Pfizer, you know what I'd do? I'd lobby government to mandate a vaccine. And I'd convince government I had the best vaccine. That's good for your business. But I mean, I'm not altruistic, Rev. I'm not hired as the CEO of Pfizer to be mother to race in disguise. I'm not. I'm not in it for the for the goodness of humanity. I mean, I hope those you know the, the, those interests rub shoulders every now and then. But but I'm there to sell vaccines and, and make a company unbelievably profitable. The government has to understand that when an executive of Pfizer comes to see. Congress or a lobbyist from Pfizer comes to see Congress. They're not coming because they believe they have the best vaccine and, and the vaccine is not to be disputed or discussed. They're there for the bottom line. I mean, that's what they're interested in. That is capitalism, but, but we have crony capitalism and we've allowed it to become so uh, normalized in our, in our economy. And, 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 I, and it goes back to Congress. It goes back to our you know our, our our legislative branch, our executive branch our I guess our judicial branch to some degree um, we're talking about judicial uh, privilege in, in the Murdoch case. I mean I saw something this morning on Twitter about you know why was Murdoch's law partner allowed to inside the um, the crime scene I don't know but I, mean, I can tell you what I think he was Murdoch's law partner in Hampton and Collington County. you know who's going to tell that guy he can't come. Uh, and, and, and you see, so, so there's always been these privileges that certain people have in certain ways that, 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 that lead government in one direction or another. And Jeff and I are in 100% agreement here. And, and seven or eight years ago, I said over these airwaves to many fewer people on a much smaller, um, I mean, we weren't in the three markets, we're in four hours a day. But, but I remember saying that if the Republicans believed that they can be dismissive of income inequality, they'll get exactly what they paid for. Income inequality is real. And I do believe that that the productivity of uh, what, whatever Rev adds to the economy, he should be compensated in a commiserate fashion. Rev generates revenue for the radio station. Rev is paid X number of dollars to be responsible for helping generate X number of dollars in revenue. Same thing here. I mean, I, I know what this show does. You guys have been unbelievably gracious to us. We formed an audience. We get some ratings. Ratings live to revenue. The, the radio station ownership believe that we're worth X. But, but you've got too many people getting more than they deserve playing the game of governments. Uh, you know, um, creating advantages or disadvantages in the marketplace where I don't think government should be functioning. I, I just don't. I think, I mean, in a perfect capitalist society, you know, we wish that were the case. Rev would get exactly what he deserves. Ken would get exactly what he deserves. Pfizer would get exactly what they deserve. But we've allowed the lobbying of government to lead to unbelievable profits. So the point Jeff made about Tim Cook, take Tim Cook for any. I mean, I'll give you real quick. Yeah, you know, just the way I understand it. So Cook's salary is a million dollars. He's taxed uh, on ordinary income of a million dollars. There's a tax rate that applies. He gets deductions. I would imagine. He doesn't go to um, h and Block or your local, you know, short form. He doesn't do what my kids do. I mean, he goes and gets a, a pretty extensive um, well, uh, summation of his taxes. But then Tim Cook gets $10 million in Apple stock. And how is that $10 million in Apple stock taxed? It's his capital gains. So, so, so Cook's got a million dollars in salary that is taxed like the average working stiff. And then he's got $5 million a year in stock options. That he's not taxed in that way and i do agree with jeff we, we've got a corporate world that is too heavily weighted on playing the game that they've built the, the majority of people in america today don't really care what capital gains tax rates are because you don't own enough stock your portfolio isn't significant enough to be real concerned about that or another and, and i'm not saying see, see, and this is where i get real confused so as part of tim cook's compensation I mean, is Cook worth more than a million dollars? Probably. So to say that you know um, the 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 stock option should be taxed as ordinary income, I'm not willing to go there. I'll go somewhere, but I'm not willing um, to go there. We have a very incremental way of taxing the private sector anyway. I mean, it's regressive, right? I mean, the more you might, we tax productivity at a higher rate than we tax unproductivity. Here's somebody making a million dollars a year because they're incredibly productive, but they're having to pay a higher tax rate than somebody making $100,000 a year who's not very productive. Philosophically, I'm I'm at odds with that. I think the person that generates a million dollars of productivity that contributes to the GDP should be taxed at a lesser rate. Why? Because he's producing more. I mean, he's adding more value to the economy. And we're getting, I mean, we're really starting to split hairs now about what the perfect tax code is. What, what is the best way to generate the revenue the government needs to pay its bills and then and, and provide the services that Rev and I and everybody else has become accustomed and used to. The, the, the problem in Washington today, Rev, is we don't have these debates. I mean, Jeff and I could sit on a committee and Jeff could argue about capital gains and, and you know, ordinary income, and, and we can debate some of these, and out of that comes policy. And Jeff probably doesn't get exactly the policy he wants, and Ken probably doesn't get the exact policy he wants. But we get better policy. We get more thoughtful policy. We just don't do that now. And I, and I go back to last night. The, the loudest applause line in the entire State of the Union was the most grotesque bipartisan moment during the entire State of the Union. That's the National Review's word, not mine. I saw it this morning. Um, the grotesque bipartisan moment is what they called it when Biden basically said that we're not going to touch Social Security. We're not going to touch Medicare. He's not serious. I mean, we're we're not a serious people if we believe that we can get um, to a better place regarding Social Security and Medicare. Now, now, Jeff believes revenues the problem. I mean, he just said that he thinks we need to tax Tim Cook stock um, options at a higher rate. We need to tax some of the corporate earnings at a higher rate. I don't know that I disagree with that, but but I'm not going to just jump on Jeff's train because he says you know some of these kind of anti corporatist anti-capitalist pronouncements but but i do believe it's time to to more seriously consider where the government spends its money and where it generates its revenue because and i think we need to have a serious
1: discussion about the idea that's floated for abolishing the income tax and see what sort of revenues we generated by a, 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 a transaction tax or whatever but but imagine if it's
0: viable. but but imagine the accounting business how, how hard they would lobby the government I mean, if you and I right. didn't need an accountant, we didn't need tax returns, we didn't need any of this. I mean, can you imagine how many accountants? I mean, it'd be like a little bit like, let's just hypothetically say that, that Elon Musk, he's, he's, the, he's the most creative, innovative entrepreneur in the world today. Let's see Elon Musk has a laboratory somewhere and they create a fluoride tablet. And if you take this fluoride tablet from the time you're one year old to the time you die, you never have a cavity, you never have a problem. You don't think the dental industry would be in Washington tomorrow? trying to outlaw and abolish the fluoride tablet of course they would I mean we've got an entire end- we got dental schools we got dental assistants and dental hygienists and we've got all this at risk if we do something that makes sense for the American government and you know what I'd do if I were a dentist and Elon Musk had a magic fluoride tablet I'd get in a car and go my ass to Washington and I'd say whoa sure. whoa do you know how many dental schools there are in America You know how much investment has been made in the dental profession in America? Um, It's it's a complicated world when you allow government to get that intervening and involving in the affairs of the private sector. But it's what we've allowed to happen. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Half a Celsius under my belt. I'm good to go now. (laughs) Are you? I'll I'll walk from here to wherever I need to go. I don't need to drive anywhere. Who needs a car when you got a can of Celsius, live fit and energetic.
1: So uh, why do you suppose there aren't more real conversations about these type of issues where you know you can have an honest dialogue back and forth and and come up with a solution that may or work. Are you talking about between Jeff and I? Yeah, like you and yeah, Don't
0: accuse me of agreeing with Jeff too much because that's <laughs> well, bad for business. Um, and he wouldn't want to be Well, I mean, of course of he would because he's a crazy liberal and I'm a really, really grounded conservative. Um, <laughs> no, the, the, the reality is Jeff and I can debate these issues in a vacuum without being influenced by lobbyists. I mean, that, you know, lobbyists know that I can't vote on anything. I mean, I can help to some degree. I'll give an example. So when the, when the school board decided to raise taxes by the most ever in Florence County in February, I felt a responsibility to get involved in that debate and engage our audience and inform our audience on what I thought was a bad decision. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't do that much. I hardly ever tell people what they need to believe or what they need to think. I mean, we have conversations every morning about what I believe and what you believe, and Jeff normally believes something different, different than I do. But all of these discussions take place separate of lobbying influence. The, the lobbyist in Washington, or Columbia for that matter, they know that Jeff doesn't sit on a committee and Ken doesn't sit on a committee, that we're not going to vote on a magic fluoride pill or, or a change to Social Security or not. We're going to you know engage an audience, and we're going to have somewhat of a voice or a forum. But, but you get to Washington, and you start talking about Social Security, or you start talking about, you know, whatever it is, I mean, debt or taxes or whatever, that there's always an interest. The one thing I learned when I was Lieutenant Governor is when you bang the gavel and there's a vote and you read the the yeas have it or the nays have it, somebody wins and somebody loses. It's a zero sum game, Reb. So many senators voted for it, so many senators, and I remember going, You know, voting is closed. The A's have it. And and I'd always say to myself, somebody just won and somebody lost. And I'm not talking about honoring volleyball teams. And I'm not talking about naming roads or bridges after people. I mean, there's a ceremonial symbolism that goes along with politics everywhere. Um, You know, I'm mad because they named that road after that retired judge. And, you know, this other retired judge was better than that. I mean, I get that. I mean, that's personality and, uh, you know, some degree of, uh, what am I trying to say here? Um... Uh, there's no real. I mean, nepotism. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people get involved in that. But on the big issues, nothing has nothing happens separate of lobby influence. There are when the when the subcommittee meets to address the magic fluoride pill, there will be many many lobbyists in that room, and they know how to get their message across loudly and clearly. So when Jeff and I debate an issue, agree or disagree. There is no lobbyist tuned in to make sure they understand with clarity what Jeff said or what Ken said. I remember. I'll give you a personal story. So I got elected lieutenant governor, got invited to speak at a business group, Chamber of Commerce and Greenville. I'm making that up. It was a chamber, but I don't remember if it's Greenville or not. And I go and speak about and, uh, you know, answer questions at the end because I'm crazy enough to answer to answer questions. And I'm crazy enough to answer the question, <laughs> you know, not just um, – Allow the question. I'll answer the question to the best of my ability. Someone called in and asked about taxes. And and I talked about the tax code in South Carolina and the, um, the cap on automobiles. And I said, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me that if I go to the furniture store and buy a bedroom suit, the taxes on that bedroom suit could exceed the taxes on the pickup, you know, that I'm hauling the furniture on. Well, the word got out that I'd said something like that. You know where I'm headed because I've told mm-hmm. you this story. Next thing I know, I get a call from the South Carolina Auto Dealers Association. What's your problem with us? <laughs> I don't have a problem with you. Well, can we come visit with you? We want to explain, you know, why we think we've got a good policy in South Carolina. Well, I mean, they had an interest. But I mean, they're not hired to, to listen to rationale. They're hired to protect their industry. They're hired to look after their industry in the most aggressive way imaginable. So when I said, oh, go think, is, is that an insane argument to make? That, that I'm driving a, a three-year old truck, I've got a, a bedroom suit in the back of that truck and I paid more I'm paid more in taxes in that on that bedroom furniture than I do the truck I'm driving down the road. Well there's something very sane about that argument, very practical about that argument. but the the, the furniture company didn't have a lobbyist. and, and I'm, not, I'm not begrudging lobbyists. I mean you know the, the, they do what they do and the Constitution affords them to write to the petition their government. But, but when to, to your question, when Jeff and I debate, everybody in the world knows that I'm not voting on the policy today and Jeff's not voting on the policy today. So we have these debates removed or are not influenced at all by the people in the room that are paid, um, some, sometimes are, are compensated handsomely, to make sure certain things happen and, and certain things don't. And I go back to Pfizer. Do, do I believe with every fiber of my being – that the CEO of Pfizer is a person who wishes to make the best vaccine imaginable? Yeah. But I think for all practical purposes, Pfizer's not in the business of misleading people. But, but I think the, the the effectiveness or efficacy or durability of the vaccine is not as important to the CEO as the bottom line. So if Pfizer has information that says, we're not sure how durable this vaccine is, We're not sure how effective this vaccine is, but it could be real profitable. He's not misleading people when he says we've made an effective and durable vaccine, because you know what he didn't do? He didn't tell you how effective it was. He didn't tell you how durable it was. But he knows it's going to be highly profitable. So what is the CEO of Pfizer's objective? To make Pfizer as profitable as possible. So when Pfizer goes to the government and says we've got this effective, durable vaccine we believe it can help, you know, with, with, a, with the pandemic, the reasons behind the pandemic. Um, the government says, uh, okay, what do we need to do? We need to mandate the vaccine. Why do we need to mandate the vaccine? I mean, if you're a conservative Republican, why do we need to mandate that people take a, a vaccine that we're not sure how effective or durable it is? And that's when Pfizer says, well, we are having, you know, we, we got about 60, $70 million in our lobbying budget. And we could, you know, we, we could, could we change your mind? I mean, they don't say that, but they're basically saying, what would it take to convince you that we have the most effective and most durable vaccine? And, and the congressman doesn't say, how about two fundraisers next quarter? <laughs> right. But he implies that, right? I mean, I could probably be convinced that Pfizer has the best vaccine. Why don't you try to convince me? And next thing you know, there's a fundraiser on K Street. There's a fundraiser at the Capitol Club. The, the member of Congress has another $200,000 in his reelection campaign. He knows he didn't put people's health at risk because Pfizer does have a vaccine that is somewhat effective and somewhat durable. But, but the congressman can now say you know, it's, it's effective and durable, but he doesn't say to some degree. Why did he say to some degree? Because they paid him not to. But they basically paid the congressman not to question how effective or how durable the vaccine really and truly is. Let's go to the phone. Tim and Florence, good morning.
6: Hey, guys, good morning. Hey, Tim. Hey, so three quick observations from the State of the Union address from last night and then an Ozark comment, if I could, because you mentioned that yesterday, Ken. Sure. Uh, So apologize if y'all have already touched on these three, but the first one was obviously the gaffe with uh, Biden calling Schumer the minority leader. I Mm -hmm. thought that was funny. Uh, even more funny was when he made the comment about finding a non-compete to work at a burger joint. I thought that was funny. <laughs> right. And then the one thing, and then the one thing I did agree with him on when he said taxes in this country aren't fair. I'm, I'm like, Amen, brother. I agree. What about a flat tax? But I digress on that. Um, hey, on Ozark, Ken. Yesterday, when you were talking to Patrick McLaughlin, you floated out the possibility of a Ozark theory with old Alec. And I know you're saying it tongue-in-cheek, but it's not out the realm of possibility. But, you know, speaking of Ozark, that was a great show. And there's not a lot of things that make me cringe in life. Uh, You know, I guess I'm desensitized to blood and guts and all this stuff on TV shows and movies. But do you remember from season one when Dale, uh, uh, Navarro's right-hand man, comes and they're trying to make Marty sing and they break out the pliers and they, they pull off a couple of his toenails,
8: mm-hmm.
6: man, man. anything having to do with toenails just freaks me <laughs> out. So, you know, and my wife's all the time going, hey, why don't you go to the place where I get my nails done and get a pedicure? I'm like, are you crazy? Ain't nobody messing with my toes or toenails. <laughs> but where I'm going with all that is, and, and, and obviously I'm being a little bit silly here, if you want to know where the money is, how about I get some pliers and pull off a couple of all Alex toenails?
0: <laughs> thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Um, I, I remember what, that it, scene well. But I mean, I floated. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it, Tip. I floated Ozark, not not to be completely provocative. I mean, I think there's a theory out there that leads you to believe that there could be some drug cartel or Russian oligarch or or Mexican businessman or woman. I and mean, I don't know that. Obviously, I don't have any idea. Um, I think Patrick explained. Probably something the defense should have done in retrospect that they haven't. And that is to say, you know, Alec is a a, a liar and a cheat and a thief. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he stole money from his law practice. He's done some pretty egregious things to people. He said he cared deeply about and cared deeply about him. But we're not here to debate whether he's a piece of crap or not. We're not here to debate whether he stole money or not. We're, we're not here to debate whether he disguised himself as a good, competent lawyer or not. We're here to debate whether he killed his his wife and kid. And I think engaging that, I'll give you an example. If I were going to ever run for office again, you know what I'd do when I announced that I am a scandal-stricken former lieutenant governor of South Carolina who got charged with multiple violations of campaign finance? I did it. I I did it. I don't blame anybody else for the way I did it. Um, I I regret doing it, but I did it. And, And I think you put that on the table. So when the opponent says, hey, did you know that the guy I'm running against was a violator of campaign finance laws. The voters say, yeah, he's told us that a hundred times, you know, out of his own mouth. I mean, he's admitted that he screwed the pooch, so to speak. He goofed it up, you know, when he, when he did that, um, you kind of, I don't say you embrace it, but you put it on the table. You let people know, Hey, here I am, uh, you know, blood, guts, and feathers. You kind of own it. Yeah. I mean, I own it. It it, is a part of who I am. Um, I'm, I'm here to redeem myself. I won't ever do that again. Um, And and I I think, I think that when when Patrick said that if he were the defense attorney, he would have put that out there and said, look, they're going to tell you that my guy broke a lot of, I mean, just did a lot of things he shouldn't have done in regards to, um, the finance of a law firm, escrow accounts, the public trust, but, but that's not why we're here. I mean, he's guilty of all that, but we're not here to decide whether he's guilty of all that or not. We're here to decide whether he killed his wife and kid. So I think Ozark is a reasonable alternative to put on the table um, because there's somewhere between ten and fifteen million dollars per per my investigating that has not been um, disclosed. Where is that ten to fifteen million dollars? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, well, there's a beach house in Edisto worth a lot of money. There's a seventeen hundred. 1,700 acre hunting plantation that's worth a lot of money, but there's not a lot of debt. I mean, there doesn't, there, there doesn't appear to be a paper trail of the money that he embezzled and stole to the house in Edisto, to the 1,700 acre, um, you know, hunting property. So so I, I don't know. I don't have any idea where the money is, but, but when you've got in excess of $10 million unaccounted for, you you, you kind of start asking okay why i mean where who how many how many of you could spend 10 million dollars i mean it'd take you a while right and you'd have to have something to show for it i mean how many how many bourbons can you drink for 10 million dollars how many nights on the town can you have for 10 million dollars especially in hampton and colleton county now i get the coast is a little more ritzy than some of the inland areas of where they are i I just think there's you know to to insinuate that there's potentially an Ozark scenario is not completely and totally unbelievable. I think that's something that you gotta consider. Eight four three six six one O nine three seven. Take a break back in a minute. Eight four three six six one O nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Wendell in Pageland. Good morning. You're on the air.
9: Hey man. Uh y'all was talking about all this money that the government's spending.
1: Well, we've got
5: people to come into the United States and they take it and they go back to their country and so many years that so they don't have to pay taxes on it. So why don't we start? If they come over here, we start taxing them time to come in.
0: I mean, Wendell, thank you for the call to preach. There's a lot of things we need to do that we aren't doing. But, but when, you have a, when you're financially distressed in your, in your household, where, where are the places you look? I mean, do you look at the price of a dozen eggs or do you look at your house payment? I mean, you know, I'm talking about the big issues, the big ticket items. I mean, that's when a family or country get financially distressed, and we are financially distressed. I mean, everything's fair game. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't look at a lot of these other ways to save money and make the the government more efficient. But I think there are a few big ticket items that we've got to have the courage to address in meaningful fashion, or it will lead to America's decline and demise. I, I'm convinced of that, that the majority of businesses that have trouble aren't because the widget isn't any good. That they, they, they've grown, they've taken on debt, they can't service the debt, they've got a lot of issues. Um, they, they get over leveraged. some of that's always an issue that you gotta be careful about in the business world and private sector. So I'm not saying don't look at some of these other smaller points but but you've got to look at Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid if you're going to seriously try to address our debt issue in America.
1: But the example last night when that happens, you had one senator, Rick Scott, who said something about uh, looking at those issues and look how that issue was used against him, the Republicans, sure. and the result was the, the standing O for, for never touching those things.
0: To show we're all so on the same team here. Uh, and the majority of seniors vote, 843-661-0937. Talking about Social Security, I'll give you some homework. You ready? You want to live in my world for just a minute or two or three? Probably don't, but I'm if not you I'm not going
1: to read the Fed Beige book, if go, that's what you're suggesting.
0: Go to the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, Foundation for Economic Education, and look up a story, the myth of Social Security Trust Fund. The myth of the Social Security Trust Fund. It chronologically goes through um, the new dealers, and and then what happened? I mean, it's a, um, it's written by it's just some PhD in economics. I can't think of where uh, the person's from, but anyway, they've done a um, a deep dive on Social Security. Um, they've kind of kind of adapted some of the parts of a uh, an analysis and research done, um, and then they've done as good a job as any I've ever heard of at explaining the 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 founding of Social Security, some of the mistakes we've made along the way. Um, Some of the reasons we've not done much of anything to address it. Um, When it began to become apparent to the American uh, government that it was a problem in waiting, you know, the baby boomers, Jeff was talking about the number of people turning, I think it's 10 or 11,000 people turn 65 every day in America. They become eligible for social security. Um, You got so much more going out than coming in now. We're depleting some of the reserves and you know, when you say they loaned all the money to other government agencies, they bought T bills and bonds and whatnot. So it's not. It's I understand that the, the red meat conservative says the money's not there. Well, the money's not there, but the you know the, the bonds and T bills are there, and and they're doing that to get some degree of interest. It's not total incompetence. It's close, but it's not. It's not total. <laughs> I feel much better. Well, I, mean, now. I read I read an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago. The Washington Insider stole another. 1.2 billion from the social security trust fund. They aren't really trust funds, I mean, they're federally authorized accounts and they have inflow and outflow and they have uh, balances. And I mean, it's complicated, but, um, but you know, if you're, if you're a conservative, excuse me, if you're a, um, a person trying to get elected in America today and you speak to a group of, um, you know, eligible voters, and I'm talking about people over the age of 65, stop the raid on the social security trust funds immediately repay all the monies that were illegally diverted from the social security trust funds um you win that room you you without question enjoy your day we'll talk tomorrow